This podcast contains adult language and mature themes, which may not be suitable for all listeners. So listen at your own fucking risk. Essential NPCs, the podcast where we sample some of the best and possibly some of the worst tabletop RPGs. I'm Addie. And I'm Tommy. And you're listening to Series 4, Episode 1, Opening Ceremonies. Oh, Series 4! We're here! Air horn. Uh, All right, Series 4. We're going to be playing Tefra, the The steampunk RPG. RPG. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But before we get into many details on that, just a couple quick announcements. Uh, First and foremost, character art for this series is out. So if you didn't see it... It's so good. Yeah, if you didn't see it yesterday when it was posted, uh, go and check it out. You can find it on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, all all of our social media, and on our website, EssentialNPCs.com. Go check it out. Uh, Our artist-in-residence, Lillian Dermeyer, knocked it out of the park again. Four series in a row. She's killing it. Uh, We've had a ton of fun. Or uh, uh, She did. She's killing it. Uh, I really recommend checking it out. Um, It will help you kind of envision these characters as we move forward. So every time we move into a new system, we uh, explain sort of what we are and what we do on this podcast because uh, we tend to bring in a whole new potential fan base. So hi. Hi, all of you Tefra fans (laughs) who haven't listened to us before. Uh, (laughs) Welcome. The main premise of our podcast is that uh, every series we do a different RPG system. Series four is going to be a long series. There's going to be about 20 episodes of this. uh, And the, uh, the only real gimmick we have that ties the other, all the series together is that occasionally uh, we bring in NPCs from previous uh, series and retool them to fit in the world of the new system. Uh, so there may be occasional moments when uh, we say the name of a character and the players get excited because they remember him, uh, remember that character from uh, you know series two or something like that, and are interested to see how he's going to play into this. Uh, so series four, which is Tefra, this one that we're starting right now, is. Uh the first system that we're exploring in our second year. Um, so we've done D&D, Shadowrun, and Uncharted Worlds in the past. Uh, so you can go and check those out if you've got some extra time to kill in the car uh, or at the office so you can figure out what you like and what you don't. Uh, each episode begins with a segment much like this where Addie and I talk uh, pr- mostly about the previous episode uh, in what we a segment we call... Words with the GM. Uh, It's where we sit down with the game runner, uh, who in this system is me, uh, and talk about the previous episode both from a player perspective and from a game runner perspective, and hopefully give some tips to those of you who are interested in running this system or just really any system in general. Uh, Blanket GM tips sometimes. as, as we come across uh, problems that we had to troubleshoot or issues we didn't see coming, we like to explain them uh, to you guys so you can learn from our experience. Uh, and uh, that's kind of the long and short of, uh, of what the Essential NPCs podcast is. Um, so for those of you who don't know this system at all, uh, let's talk a bit about Tefra. Yeah, D12s. Yes. For real. Uh, so <laughs> Tefra is set in a steam, uh, steampunk world, and...
and uh, the system is built on rolling uh, 12-sided dice and uh, tiering your successes. Um, so you roll a 12-sided die, you add uh, or subtract the appropriate modifier for the uh, stat that you are rolling, uh, and you tier your successes. So uh, a result of 1 uh, through 9 is a tier one success, which basically counts as barely passing. If you're attempting to jump over a table and you roll a tier one success, all you've successfully done for sure is jump. <laughs> um, a tier two success is a result of 10 through 19, which would be considered a solid success uh, where you managed to clear the table uh, more or less. You did it. You didn't trip up. Uh, a tier three success would be a result of 20 through 29, which is considered a phenomenal success. So maybe you managed to, like, if you're running from someone, jump over the table and kick it behind you and they kind of trip up on it or something. You, you somehow get a boon along with what you're attempting to do normally. Uh, and a tier four success, which is a result of 30 or more, is beyond human, which means, like, you clear the table, you kick it back, it hits the dude in the face, they pass out and you like look real cool doing it or something. Um, and if you guys are wondering about that often neglected D12, uh, you roll a D12 because it's a clockwork system because clockwork is all, you know, everywhere in steampunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 12 faces on a clock, 12 points on this die. Uh, very, very steampunky. Uh, they managed to make the mechanics of the system as thematic as the game itself. Um, which, let's get in a little bit to that. The setting of uh, Tefra. Uh, it takes place on the continent of Relusia and the many countries that populate it. It is kind of your standard Victorian era steampunk with a little bit of a, a fantastical twist to it. Now, there's not magic or anything like that. Not, not Nothing so overt, but uh, there are multiple races uh, that players can choose from. So there's humans, which are uh, probably the most populous race in the world. Uh, and then there's gnomes, which are actually really interesting. They are, in a way, your typical tinkering heavy gnomes that you think of uh, from multiple other uh settings, but, uh, Gnomes in Tefra actually don't like industrialized materials. Uh, they prefer to tinker using uh, natural materials. And in fact, they have uh, the strongest connection to nature out of all the races. Uh, and some gnomes can even like reach into like the root of a, of a tree and pull out like a tool. Like uh, they, have, they have something almost like a magical relationship with, with nature and can create um, um, machinery using uh, like wood and stone and like twine and stuff. Uh, uh, that rivals the industrialized uh, tech of most of the world. Um, but they seem to be the only ones who actually are able to do that. Uh, uh, and then you have elves, which are... Um, not what you think of when you think of elves. Uh, elves in this world are uh, large, almost lumbering creatures. They have very, like, they have kind of like a disproportionate length of arm to the rest of their body. Uh, they usually have very hunched over postures and strong, like, ripcord muscles. Uh, they do still have very, like, pointed features, like, a, like some elves you might think of. Their ears are elongated. Um, and uh, uh, they're often considered uh, stupid. Um, and uh, barbaric, um, and that's mostly because they come from a tribal culture. It's not actually true. Many of the elves uh, in the world are uh, very intelligent. In fact, 
one of the most prominent elves in history in the history of Tefra discovered in a way one of the other races in Tefra and that would be the Farishta. Uh, Farishta when you when you think of an elf in a normal thing like Lord of the Rings or Dungeons and Dragons Farishta is that that's what a Farishta is. Uh, basically uh, this one elvish uh, scientist uh, Revisiel. Uh, discovered that elves were missing an aspect of uh, their genetic code that all other living creatures had, and he called it essence. Uh, so what he did is he made a synthetic essence and injected himself with it. And when he did that, he under he went underwent uh, an extreme transformation and became uh, this beautiful creature with long ears and like a straight posture and angel wings. Um, he was the first Furishta. Um, when he did this, though, he uh, he changed in personality and uh, and every elf who has undergone the uh, transformation has similar results. Uh, fragments at most of their per- their previous personality exist uh, in their Farishta self. Uh, some of them don't even remember, like can't even recognize their old family once they uh, make the transformation. Uh, and very, very, very few of them have wings. Um, Obviously, what this ended up doing is it is it made uh, a, a divided social structure in the uh, in the countries that were uh, heavily populated uh, with elves, as many of them decided that the Farishta were their true form and you know like obvious leaders for the country, um, and so it created this like huge dichotomy of uh, of like the Farishta ruling over the elves in a very very class based system, uh, and then even within the Farishta, there's a bunch of different classes. Farishta uh, like there's the day society who are like the super, like they, they control everything. They're winged uh, and they're the best. Uh, and then you have the other Farishta, which are still way above like the elves that live there. But uh, uh, within that, the set, the night society, which is the second tier of Farishta, there's a bunch of different uh, layers. Uh, you know, there's like the royalty and then there's like the working class, but even the working class is still like miles above the like peasantry of uh of the elves and gnomes that live in the uh primarily farishta run country dalvosia uh and uh it's been enough time since farishtas were uh were discovered uh that uh some, there are some second generation farishta who uh, farishta who weren't elves to begin with they actually were born that way but um that's only started to happen more recently so it is actually kind of a rarity to find a uh, second generation farishta after that uh, you have also uh, satyrs, uh, and what satyrs are um, is uh, a long time ago uh, in Tefra there was um, uh, there was a, an empire that controlled most of the land. It was called the Howdy Empire, uh, and they got a little obsessed with bioengineering, and they started cre- trying to create the perfect slave race. Uh, in doing so, they created many many monstrosities, which now basically make up all the monsters in the world. Um, but uh, in addition to that, uh, they they finally found their perfect slave race, and it was the satyrs. Uh, and uh, since then, uh, the Howdy Empire has fallen. And now the primary country uh, in uh, the primary country in Relusia is Evangelis, Um and the satyrs are more or less all free. Uh, though some uh, some of the countries still like hold on to the Howdy Empire remnants and have a little bit of slavery in them. Uh, satyrs are what you think of when you think of a satyr. Uh, one interesting thing about them is that they were ge- uh, genetically engineered to. Uh, uh, be immune to the effects of alcohol. In fact, alcohol works on them in the same way coffee works on other people. Uh, so because of this, uh, Seder culture has grown, uh, 
completely around drinking because they drink it for the like intricate flavors you can get from like beer and stuff. Uh, uh, and they don't drink it to get drunk. And the final race we have is the Aodin, uh, which are like really, really cool. Um, uh, they're, they're kind of like merfolk. Uh, they, you know, they have like scales and, and like kind of like finned faces and stuff. Uh, and they have these giant wings on their back, but they're not actually wings. They, uh, they don't function on like above the water as wings, but when they're in the water, they act as like giant fins that make them just like rocket through the water at great speeds. Um, uh, Aodin are, are, uh, have a bit of a sordid history with all the other races uh, because they didn't really actually exist anywhere outside the sea for a really long time. But basically in Aodin culture, uh, you know, when they all lived in the ocean, uh, a bunch of Aodin decided that like they should take over the land and kill all the land dwellers. And uh, all the peace loving Aodin were like, fuck this, we're getting out. Uh, so there's this thing called the Aodin Exodus where a bunch of Aodin all uh, ran to the surface and were like, hey, a war's coming. You guys have to prepare. Here's some of our really cool uh, like anti gravity technology uh so that you can hopefully fight our warmongering brethren <laughs> um so the ones that uh the runs that ran away they're called uh, uh freshwater aodin and they've more or less integrated into into society at this point uh but they're still pretty rare and uh can sometimes run into a bit of racism uh because what followed their exodus was what's called the Hurricane Wars. <laughs> and uh, that's when the saltwater Aodin rose up and uh, tried to take over the land. Um, it was a uh, long, hard fought um, and actually cost one of the countries, Paldorus, uh, everything. Uh, the Paldorans uh, t uh, took the Aether anti-grav technology of the Aodin and overused it and uh, made their uh, homeland an irradiated wasteland uh, and had to actually take to the sky and giant flying cities that are called storm ships. Uh, and uh, because they had nothing left, they became pretty much universally pirates, with some exception. Um, and that's all the races that exist and a pretty good helping of the history of Relusia. Um, what's interesting about this campaign is it doesn't really take place in the main uh, setting of Tefra, which is Evangles, which is uh, the like standard like Victorian like you know you know British gentleman ha ha like type uh, <laughs> type steampunk that you would think of. Uh, instead, I've created a campaign which is uh, more or less a race around the world, uh, going around all the bordering countries of Evangles. Uh, through all of Relusia, um, exploring these different uh, these different cultures that exist outside of like purely stereotypical steampunk setting of Evangles, uh, and this is where uh, the story of this campaign ventures a little bit away from uh, from Tefra as it is written in the rulebook and more into my own homebrewy uh, uh, setting of. Relusia. Um, so it all starts with the core delete. Uh, in Evangles, there's an exclusive club, uh, one even more exclusive and influential than the uh, very famous Fullborn Society, which is kind of like the Freemasons almost. Um, the core delete has only 12 members, and it has only ever had 12 members, each one more filthy rich than the last. The core delete was founded before the beginning of the Hurricane Wars. A young, enigmatic adventurer by the name of Roscoe Burwin Cornfoot sought to bring together the 
best and brightest of his generation for the purposes of exploration and adventure. Uh, ever the charismatic leader, Roscoe managed to gather a group of 11 other adventurers to follow him on countless exploits. Things ranging from mercenary work during the Hurricane Wars to exploring and plundering ancient temples long forgotten. Uh, the court elite basically did it all. Shortly before the end of the Hurricane Wars, the average age of any given court elite member was getting dangerously close to middle age. Uh, so the group hung up their adventuring cloaks and parted ways to invest their unspeakably large profits in whatever industries and causes appealed to them. They were always a pretty competitive lot, though, and each member of the group was determined to outdo the others in their personal endeavors. When Sir Roscoe Burren Cornfoot founded the Society for Antiquity Collections, Reverend Isaiah Basington commissioned the renovators to build the country's largest cathedral. When Nestor Torchinovich created the world's first clockwork automaton, Cornelius Jollypot oversaw the creation of the International Railway System. When the Evangelian Civil War broke out, the former members of the court elite found themselves split on opposite sides of the conflict. This, however, played to their relationship. Uh, their obsessive competition with each other translated directly into their involvement in the war. Each member poured so many resources into their respective sides that any time a corps elite-funded force of the militarists clashed with a corps elite-funded force of the royalists, the result was always a stalemate. And some say the Evangelian Civil War may have been half as long if not for the involvement of the corps elite. Once the Civil War had concluded, the members of the court elite reunited, delighted with their competition over the war, and they decided to keep the spirit of one-upsmanship alive by conceiving a new contest, which is now known as the Great Atroposian Circuit. The rules of the race were simple. A series of checkpoints were mapped out, snaking through all the countries bordering Evangles, and each member of the court elite would recruit a team of three adventurers, and the member whose team made it through all the checkpoints the fastest would be declared the winner and claim the victor's purse. Now, it surely never was the express intention of the court elite for the Atroposian circuit to become the public spectacle it has turned into over the years. Uh, however, the fame the court elite accumulated over the years meant many of Relusia kept close tabs on them. Uh, and by the time the second annual Atroposian circuit was scheduled, radio broadcasts began speculating on what teams the court elite would compile and who the, had the best chance of winning the race that year. Uh, the race was never officially sanctioned by any of Relusia's governments, but it has easily become an international event. Uh, but due to the unregulated nature of the race, it's not uncommon for competitors to die before reaching the finish line. Many suspect foul play on the part of certain court elite members, uh, even though the rules of the race strictly forbid the adventurers from mortally injuring each other. Uh, others suspect third parties interested in rigging the race to secure their bets and the large amounts of gambling that surround the event. Whatever the cause, there are two things that are certain. The mortality rate of the Great Atroposian Circuit is troublesome, and those who agree to take part in the race are clearly the bravest, or least intelligent, adventurers to walk Relusia. So the rules of the Great Atroposian were designed in the interest of having the most exciting, challenging, and more importantly, fair race as possible. At one point in the second Atroposian circuit, a member of Baron Joseph Arcturus Adams' team was caught in the act of killing another adventurer, and the Baron begrudgingly withdrew his team's claim to the victor's purse. Uh, that being said, the general air of the competition appears to be along the lines of, it's okay to cheat as long as you don't get caught. So, rule number one, 
No adventurer is to inflict mortal injuries on any other adventurer. While the adventurers are allowed to, and even encouraged to, interfere with each other, they are expected to do so in non-lethal ways. Uh, they are also expected not to harm innocent bystanders, though no one has been disqualified for that as of yet. Uh, rule number two. The benefactor's sole interaction with the race is picking their team. The competition is to see who can pick and groom the best and brightest adventurers this generation has to offer. Benefactors are forbidden from providing financial, material, or logistical support to their teams. From the moment they're chosen, adventurers are on their own as far as planning and preparation. The only thing a benefactor can do once they've chosen their team is explain the rules to them and introduce them to who they'll be competing against. Rule number three. Adventurers are not to be told the course of the circuit until just before the race begins. They are expected to be uh, they are, they are expected to be adaptable enough to plot the best course on the fly. Rule number four: Adventurers are to begin the race with only what they can carry on them. Anyone can drop a few thousand kings on a heavily augmented airship designed to complete the course in record speed, but the type of person who does that is hardly an adventurer. Nope, the journey begins on foot and the adventurers can only prepare so far as their rucksacks allow them. Rule number five, uh, the race is a circuit of the border countries of Evangles. Any adventurer spotted on Evanglesian ground or in Evanglesian airspace within 36 hours of the race's beginning is immediately disqualified and their team and benefactor lose their claim to the victor's purse. Finally, rule number six: the adventurers are expected to make their journey uh, are expected to make their journey primarily on their own. Although they are encouraged to utilize help they find along the way, flat out hiring additional teammates is strictly forbidden. Any third party help the adventurers find is not allowed to last longer than two checkpoints and cannot be paid for with money. And that's all the rules of the race. Uh, the only other thing going in is. Uh, who are intrepid adventurers uh, are being backed by? Who is their benefactor who has chosen them as his team uh, to compete in the race? And that would be Cornelius Jollypot of J.P. Steele, uh, one of the first to join the Corps d'Elite. Uh, he was also the man behind the international railway system. Now, while he does respect the other members of the Corps d'Elite, he doesn't always see eye to eye with them. He's always been a man who thinks everything belongs in its proper place and is a staunch believer in rules and order. Uh, as, the sixth uh, uh, as the sixth annual Atroposian circuit approaches, Cornelius is fed up with his fellow Corps d'Elite members. He knows that they cheat, and he knows they break nearly every rule the race has. So this year, he's determined to win and he's determined to win by the rules and that's why he's picked this team he saw something in them and he's convinced they're the ones to help him claim the victor's purse but he has strictly ordered them to play by the rules and he will not hesitate to pull out of the, pull them out of the race if he feels like they're breaking any of the rules but he's not a fool he knows that they definitely need to be able to defend themselves during the journey, and he even suspects certain teams will be out to kill the other teams, or to kill any other teams they can get their hands on. Uh, so, ever the diligent old man, Cornelius has written up dossiers on all the members of the Corps Elite and their teams, and uh, we will be visiting those dossiers a lot in this first episode. Uh, so this first episode begins with them... Uh, uh, 
on the opening day of the of the race. They are arriving in Raikun uh, to uh, attend the opening ceremony, and that's where they will meet most of the teams uh, that they are going to be competing against in the flesh. Um, when teams come up, uh, I will uh, I will be sharing what uh, Cornelius's dossier says on them, uh, so you can kind of get introduced to the uh, competitors along with the players. Speaking of our players, uh, we have. Addy Gia. Hi, you're still here. Hi. <laughs> um, she's going to be playing Talia Nazari, uh, a Farishta Royal. Um, and uh, then we have Ryan Covert, uh, who was in series one and two. Uh, he is going to be playing uh, Barnabas Gunsby, a, a seasoned adventurer. And then uh, we have Daniel Barron, who was in both series two and three, uh, returning to play uh, Ezekiel Quaglin, uh, a gnomish pilot uh, of Paldoran descent. Um, but uh, no need for me to uh, introduce these characters. Uh, we can let them introduce themselves uh, as we move on into this episode and have the uh, and and play the character intros. So let's move on in to series four, episode one, opening ceremonies. Enjoy. Hello, I'm Barnabas Gunsby, famous big game hunter and adventurer. I come from common birth, but I've used my skills to make a name for myself. I often go on expeditions to explore the world and its many lost secrets, to tame once wild lands and lay my eyes on wonders few have seen. I've written books of my exploits to help fund my adventures and while the books have brought me wealth and fame, many believe them to be fiction. It's cast a sad shadow over my once great career. But I have been selected to participate in the great Atroposian circuit, where I shall prove to the world that Barnabas Gunsby is a true legend of adventure. Hello, I'm Talia Nazari. It's true, I am Farishta royalty, and that's all well and good, but ruling is certainly not my true passion, but a duty I fulfil nonetheless. You see, I'm first an inventor and engineer. Self-taught, but I'm very good, a natural. And I suppose that natural talent has only been helped along by a lot of time spent in solitude. But you should see all the sorts of things I've made, mostly through trial and error. I am certainly not afraid to jump in and get my hands dirty when needed. As fate would have it, being an inventor led me straight into what I believe will be one of the most interesting times of my life. Mr. Cornelius Jollypot has asked me to join his team for that great Atroposian circuit. Can you imagine? Of course I said yes, only bolstered by the fact that one of my teammates is Mr. Barnabas Gunsby, my favourite author. We're sure to have a fantastic time and perhaps even have the chance to win. I can't wait to leave Dalvozi and see the world with my amazing and talented teammates by my side. It's all so very exciting. I'm Ezekiel Quaglin, gnome pilot extraordinaire, but my friends call me Zeke. I grew up in Paldoris before the hurricane wars. When the Aedin attacked, I joined the military to do my part in defense of my people. 
When it came time to return home, we realized that in winning the war, Paldoras had become an uninhabitable wasteland. The Infernal Church of Jinzi swooped in to save the day with their city-sized stormships. This spelled salvation for many of my people, and though I was never particularly religious, I was happy to accept the church's appointment as pilot of Jinzi's Hammer. I flew the city for several years, but I never really enjoyed living on that mechanical monstrosity. When the Evanglesian Civil War broke out, I quickly volunteered for the Jinzi Corps to lend aid to the militarists. Though we lost, I earned admission to the High Flyers, and after the war, used my connections there to become a commercial pilot. It's not glamorous or exciting work, and it barely pays the bills, but it let me fly the skies. When Jollypot offered me a spot on his Atroposian Circuit team, I was happy to accept in hopes of retiring to a life of luxury. I mean, even if we don't win, at least it won't be boring. Okay, so the three of you, uh, Talia Nazari, Hello. Ezekiel Quaglin, and Barnabas Gunsby, have, <laughs> have been chosen uh, as uh, Cornelius Jollypot's team in the sixth annual Great Atroposian Circuit. Uh, the three of you met with Jollypot about two weeks ago during the Renville Inventors Fair, and he saw something in all three of you that uh, made him decide to pick you as his team for this year's race. After the Inventors Fair, you all were given transport home by Jollypot, and during uh, that transit, he explained to you the rules of the race, as well as how he expected you to conduct yourself during the race. He said he picked you specifically because he wants to win by the rules. Uh, he's gotten tired of all the Court Elite members bending and flat-out breaking the rules, and he wants to prove that the race can be won fairly and squarely, um, by following the rules. And he specifically instructs you guys to follow the rules as intended, not as written, uh, because all the court elite members have found loopholes because of the vagueness of the rules uh, to allow them to uh, effectively cheat as uh, Jolly Pot sees it. Um, so he wants you all to win in the spirit of the race. So that was two weeks ago. You all went back to your respective homes. Uh, Zeke, you actually stayed at Talia's uh, uh, manor. In Sunspire. <laughs> we had a lovely time. It was very exciting. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Barnabas, you went back home to Razul to uh, train and prepare. Um, and uh, the tickets Jolly Pot gave you guys um, were uh, timed in a way that made it so that uh, basically Zeke and Talia, the two of you, pick up. Barnabas at Razul on your way to Riken, a mountain town not too far, far from Rinville, actually. Um, and uh, in that same mountain range, the Brycon mountain range, is Cornfoot Manor, which is where the Cord Elite uh, meet. And your instructions are to go to Rikon. You've been uh, there is an inn in Rikon that is uh, hosting all of the teams. Uh, should they want to stay there, um, you have free room and board there for the night. And then the following morning, your instructions are to uh, go up the the mountain path up towards Cornfoot Manor, where you will begin the race. So uh, you are all on the train. Uh, it is approaching Rikon now. Uh, it's about. Um, it's like late afternoon as you guys are getting in, like sunset starting to, starting to fall. What do you guys do? 
Oh, Mr. Gunsby, thank you so much for signing all my books of yours. They're fantastic. I can't wait to read them again and be the inspiration for your next great adventure story. I am more than happy to sign anything you might have. Zeke, do you have anything you wish to have me sign? No, I... no. Here, you can have my copy. I brought two. That's okay. It's already signed. <laughs> How wonderful. Which one is this? I believe that is my expedition to Izeda. Found some ancient ruins there, full of perilous traps and danger and snakes. Yes. Why did it have to be snakes? <laughs> the Barnabas Gunsby character goes in and I'm, is stuck I'm, in I'm right a room here. full of... Uh, yes, I know, but the character is stuck <laughs> I, in the room of snakes uh, and he has to get out. But he hates them so much. It's amazing. It's a very exciting chapter. It sounds uh, thrilling. <laughs> I'm an actual person, not a character. I, I know you're the person who wrote the character. We've gone over this, Mr. Gunsby. You don't have to explain it to me again. Obviously I do, but that's okay. We have other, more pressing matters. Uh, the train uh, lets out a, a, a horn as it pulls into Rikon uh, Station. Um, this is your guys' destination, and you, uh, your instructions are to go to the Rusty Ratchet Inn, uh, where there is a room for you. Oh, Mr. Gunsby, would you please get my things for me? Thank you so much. <laughs> I walk out. I, uh, uh, uh. It's been like this for two weeks. <laughs> She's going to have to carry her own stuff while we're on the adventure. It's We all have our own equipment. Uh, I gonna... guess I shall be a gentleman today, and I go to go, to go get her stuff. I am. Um... I leave the book she gave me on the train after Gunsby leaves. <laughs> uh, so you go back to the storage cart, uh, uh, Barnabas, and you uh, open it up, and um, you know there, uh, there's like a quartermaster there basically who's like t looking at people's tickets and getting their stuff. Uh, yes, yes. Name Barnabas Gunsby. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm also picking up Miss Nazari's belongings because she ran off before I could argue, but that is besides the point. All right, yes, um, here, let me, uh, here's, here's your pack. And he uh, rummages in like, a, a, like an area and pulls out like your traveling pack and hands it to you. Thank and, you. Uh, and then he goes, and uh, let me go ahead and turn on Miss Nazari's luggage. I'm, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and uh, he goes back behind uh, a bunch of like, you know, crates and stuff. And there's like a little bit of a, like clanking and stuff. And then and uh, uh, he steps out. And he's like, yes, yes, yes. Uh, right, right this way. And he like gestures uh, for something like pointing. He's like, oh, you're to follow that man. And there's and uh, an automaton uh, just under seven feet tall comes around the corner. He is uh, built uh, very broadly with huge arms and legs. Uh, and like uh, he's wearing a top hat, has rose colored eyes and a big metal mustache centered on his face. Um, and he's carrying a giant backpack on his back. Uh, he's also sporting a nice uh, vest with coattails. And uh, he has a, like a pin with a chain uh, on his chest that has the Nazari uh, family crest on it. And uh, he turns and looks at you. 
and uh, starts walking towards you. Big, long strides. You, you know, he actually gets to you relatively quickly with these like long legs he has. And he's like, <laughs> and gets right up to you and he stands right in front of you and goes, boop, boop, boop. My, you're a big fellow. Boop, boop, boop. I hop on his back onto the rusty ratchet. <laughs> you jump on top of him? <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, so you climb up on the back of this automata, like where its backpack is, and it's like, whoop, 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 whoop. And like it takes a couple steps back and almost loses its balance and like kind of strides back and knocks over a uh, knocks over a bunch of crates with luggage in it. And the uh, the quartermaster is like, oh, excuse me, excuse me, completely unacceptable. Go get out, get out. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. Onward. And, and uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, yeah. And Gerald starts uh, <laughs> walking out, um, having to duck under like the door frame to get out of the train. Uh, and Talia and Zeke, you see Barnabas riding Gerald out <laughs> of the train. <laughs> I told you he'd try and ride him. <laughs> you were right. Here. <laughs> <laughs> and you hand, you hand him a duke. Well done. <laughs> Come on, Gerald. You know, Mr. Gunsby, his, his arms are designed for that. So you could just have him hold you like, you know, like a child. Whoop, whoop. Yes. Never. It's all right, Gerald. Good job. I know, I know, but it's all right. <laughs> I catch up with him and I hop off. That's quite <laughs> impressive. Did you make him? Yes. Unfortunately, I could only find four legs, so I just had to refashion two of them into arms. That's why they're so big. <laughs> oh, very interesting. I model them after my own imagination. It's very exciting in there sometimes. <laughs> Not as exciting as yours, Mr. Gunsby, of course. I could never come up with the amazing stories that you just pick out of the air. Well, you travel enough to various <laughs> locations and you just tend to pick those stories up. Like I did in person. <laughs> I know, you must have met so many interesting people to inspire you. Let's, get on, let's continue on our way. We have an adventure to go on now. I know, over here, I've already looked at the map. Uh, yeah, so you guys make your way towards the Rusty Ratchet Inn. It's pretty much centrally located. Uh, Rikon is not a uh, bad town by any means. It, it is pretty industrialized, um, so there's, you know, a decent amount of pollution and stuff. Um, it has, like, a very strong, like, mining community. The Rusty Ratchet Inn is uh, pretty medium level. I mean, you know how wealthy the uh, uh, Elite is, and they, it seems like they kind of... They could have spent more on you guys, um, but uh, it's it's homey. It's not like too terrible, and it's a, it's rather large. It has it must have a lot of rooms in it, um, and uh, yeah, you guys go in. Of course. All right. At this point, uh, it's like getting kind of dark as you guys walk into the center of town, um, and uh, you open up the uh, doors leading into the inn. Uh, the ground floor is uh, like bar slash restaurant. Basically, uh, like it almost just like feels like a tavern. Um, and then there's stairs leading up to the like several floors of uh, of rooms behind the uh, bar is a satyr. Um, and uh, she's pouring drinks for uh, a couple people. Um, you uh, recognize the person she's pouring the drinks for as Hannah Solzin, um, who is a. Uh, a member of Team Adams for the race. Um, she's getting a few pints of, of lager and uh, walking back towards a booth. You actually see a lot of people uh, from the dossiers Jolly Pot gave you. You realize that everyone who's in here besides the bartender uh, is like 
someone who's participating in the race. Um, so you think back to your uh, dossier on Hannah Solzin and uh, Team Adams, and uh, Baron Joseph Octurus Adams is the benefactor of that team. Um, he is the most thorough and cutthroat businessman to walk Relusia. He's founded almost as many industrial corporations as he's completely crushed in his endeavors. Um, Cornelius is pretty certain that Adams uses a majority of his corporate shipping lanes to smuggle illicit goods. And uh, he expects that uh, Adams uses uh, the race to deal with some of his more illegal business endeavors, uh, kind of like a front. Cornelius states that Joseph Adams always has ulterior motives, and the, even those motives have ulterior motives. Um, he's constantly focused on just one thing, which is his profits, and he treats every aspect of his life as a financial transaction, and the Atroposian circuit is no different. Um, as for this, uh, uh, this team, uh, it's Hannah Solzin, Lucius Stratford, and an elf named Shorkata. Um, Hannah Solzin is a human, uh, so is Lucius Stratford, uh, and Lucius Stratford is actually the youngest person to take part in the circuit, uh, at the age of 14. Um, they're a smuggling crew, uh, Cornelius was able to find out. They man a small elusive airship called the Barn Swallow, and they've run into the law more than a couple times. Hannah Solzin is the intrepid captain, uh, Lucius is a genius engineer, uh, especially for his age, and Shorkata is the muscle that is rarely ever crossed. Jollypot assumes that uh, Adam's hiring a crew of scoundrels like this can only mean that they are moving product for him uh, during the race. Uh, and the only way that Adams could have gotten a small smuggling crew like this to actually uh, risk their lives in something as great as the Atroposian circuit must be that he's putting the squeeze on them. In addition to uh, Team Adams, uh, who are sitting in a booth off to the side, uh, Hannah Solzin rejoining them, uh, you see a table of people playing cards. Uh, the people who are populating this table are members of uh, Team Nightingale and uh, Team Fiddleworth. Um, Team Nightingale, uh, their benefactor is Pattaya Nightingale, uh, who served as the court elite's information gatherer in their adventuring days. And, uh, Cornelius states that, uh, Pattaya Nightingale feels most at home, surrounded by thieves, scum, and all-around villainry. Uh, he makes a sport out of knowing everyone's dirty little secrets, and that's a skill that came in handy for the core when they were in their adventuring days. Uh, Cornelius believes that Pattaya's main interest in the race is in the underground gambling that surrounds it. Uh, and to that end, he always seems to select a team of notable individuals from Malusia's slimiest underbelly. Uh, people who run in circles that would gamble twice as hard on a race if they had a friend or an enemy to gamble on or against. Sitting at that table, you see his whole, his whole team, uh, Galen Rockwell, Gabriel Coote, and Ezra Keaton. And uh, according to your dossier, uh, Galen Rockwell is a rounder, uh, making a living weaseling his way into poker games against rich aristocrats who have more money than they have sense. Any, anyone who basically knows Galen for real knows that he's a cheat and a liar, uh, with a sleight of hand that even seasoned poker veterans would have trouble spotting. Gabriel Coote is a con man uh, whose M.O. is uh, to basically have an affair with a, uh, a wealthy man's wife uh, to the point where she fell madly in love with him. And then he would manipulate her into uh, 
convincing her husband to uh, begin a financial trust in her name uh, should he die. And then he publicly confronts the husband and uh, tricks uh, and goads them into challenging him to a uh, lethal duel, a, a sanctioned lethal duel. Um, and uh, he's not only a con man, he's also a, a really skilled swordsman and uh in all of his uh all of his cons he always kills the husband and then uh gets his hands on the money and then abandons the wife as for ezra keaton uh he's just kind of an all-around criminal (laughs) uh he's a streetwise thief who uh takes part in a little bit of everything you know he's been caught for holdups breaking and entering pickpocketing small time cons he's pretty much skilled in all of the illegal methods of making someone else's money his own uh so that's uh those are the three people who are playing uh cards and they have one member of team fiddleworth with them Team Fiddleworth is uh, run by Duke Forbisher Tinnen Fiddleworth. Um, Cornelius refers to Duke Fiddleworth as a man who would challenge you to a sword duel and meet with you, uh, meet you with a pistol in hand. Uh, he's a soldier, but he would never go out of his way to do the honorable thing. He cares much more about his own hide and, more importantly, his pride than playing by the rules. Uh, to this end, ever since the very first Atroposian circuit. Uh, Duke Forbisher Tinnen Fiddleworth has always chosen the most expensive bounty hunters and mercenaries as his team. Uh, each year, the Duke's team becomes more and more murderous, and Cornelius wouldn't be surprised if this year's team doesn't even try to compete in the race, instead opting to kill all the other teams and win by default. Um, sitting at the table is one member of, of Team Fiddleworth, and his name is Augustus Lodge. Uh, Augustus Lodge is an all-around gun for hire. He takes whatever work comes his way, basically. Uh, Contract killings, mercenary work, security, bounty hunting, pretty much anything. Uh, He knows all the dirty tricks in the book and isn't ashamed to use a single one of them. Um, So uh, Augustus is sitting there with um, Ezra and Gabriel and Galen, uh, and they're all seeming to play poker. Um, both, uh, uh, Augustus and Galen have cigars. Um, Galen is wearing a very nice, like, uh, blue kind of like gaudy color blue, like this, like almost like sky blue suit. Um, he's got a, he's got a blue top hat. He's got very finely groomed, uh, mutton chops and a little soul patch. Um, and, uh, he's got like a few rings on his fingers and a very nice expensive looking, uh, pocket watch chain. Uh, and he's, uh, he's dealing out the cards. Um, Gabriel Coote is wearing kind of like a mix of, uh, nice and utilitarian clothes. You know, he's got like a, a tightly, uh, tightly knotted, uh, ascot and like a very like form fitting, uh, vest and his sleeves are rolled up. Um, and Ezra is wearing like what looks like an old, maybe hand me down, uh, like black army jacket. Um, that he has unbuttoned and opened. It doesn't look like it's very well taken care of. Um, and uh, he's he's uh, he's sitting across from Augustus Lodge, who is uh, who has his big, large trench coat draped over the back of his chair, and it's like running onto the floor. Um, and he has uh, uh, like a big, like uh, wide brimmed uh, hat that looks like kind of almost like it's made out of rubber and. <laughs> Um, like it's, uh, it, you know, it's waterproof and he's got goggles perched up on his, on top of the hat. Um, he's got a scruffy beard and he's also smoking a, a cigar that doesn't look as, it looks hand rolled. Um, and, uh, he is sporting a, a large firearm on his hip. Um, and when you guys walk in, the, uh, bartender kind of waves to you 
and, and goes, are you here for the race then? Yes, thank you. Uh, all right, come over. Let me see your let me see your uh, voucher. And and Jolly Pot, did you give you guys uh, a voucher to prove that you have lodging here, that you are his team? Sure, I show it to her. I also present mine. All right, Team Jolly Pot. Can I get you anything to drink? I'll have an ale. All right, one ale. Anyone else? Do you have a kitchen? Uh, yes. What's the best thing you guys make? I'll have two of them. Turkey, it is. <laughs> Um, glass of wine, please. Uh, of course. And, uh, she, uh, goes over to the tap, pours Barnabas's ale, slides it along the bar to him, uh, and then she, uh, reaches down into, like, a, a cabinet, opens it up, and pulls out, like, a bottle of wine that she kind of has to dust off, and then she uncorks it and pours it in a, a glass that she also kind of had to clean, hands it to, um, Talia, and then, uh, she reaches up uh, above like where all the liquor is and grabs like a kind of like a, a speaker looking thing, like a microphone and uh, pulls it down on like a, on a, on its cord and goes two turkeys, please. And then like, let's go. And it snaps back up to its position. Uh, and uh, she goes, all right, you can go ahead and have a seat wherever uh, you, you, uh, you lot the, all of you racers, you adventurers, you have uh, the run of the place. Oh, excellent. Is there a place where I could store Gerald? Yeah, I mean, you have your room. Uh, here's the keys, and he uh, and she hands you a set of keys, um, and says that uh, uh, you're up on the first floor, uh, room seven. All right, Gerald, room seven. Whoop, whoop, I hand whoop. him the keys. Whoop, 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 whoop. Uh, he goes long strides, uh, moving quickly towards the door and up the stairs. And uh, and you guys hear a loud shout from the table playing poker as uh, it seems that um, Augustus has won a big hand and he's like pouring all of the, uh, he's pulling all of the like poker chips towards him and, and, uh, and kind of like laughing and stacking them up. What do you guys do? You are being like, everyone has taken note of you guys walking in, but no one's come to approach you yet. I find us a table. Okay. There's a, there's a a handful of tables open since only one of them is really in use. There's basically like six or seven tables and then like four or five booths. So one booth is an occupation and one table is an occupation. Oh, we get a booth then. We're not savages. <laughs> Talia, Talia, Talia. Wine is not an adventurer's drink. All right. Try some of this. Oh, um, no, thank you. I will just have mine. That that will be much better for me. Wine. Ah? Uh, yes. No, uh, um, I'm sure I'll have m- lo- lots on the way. N- not fair n- enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Also, I noticed you brought quite a bit of luggage. Well, the rules say everything you can carry, so... Can you carry Gerald? I think I can. Cross <laughs> the starting line. <laughs> It'll be a team effort. <laughs> I, I think, I dare say, he will come in useful. I'm sure. I agree. It's, that was an excellent idea. I was Having inspired. Having mule. I was inspired when I saw all those shiny things at the Inventors Fair. I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And so then I decided, and then I tell the whole story of how I created Gerald. <laughs> like piece by piece. Yes. That's step. marvelous. <laughs> Intriguing. Uh, about and you threw them together in two weeks? I had an extra four days after I was finished for, you know, tweaking. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, as you're... Uh, finishing up your story, the door to the inn opens up and another three people walk in. 
uh, who you recognize from the dossiers as uh, Team Cornfoot. Um, Team Cornfoot is uh, run by Sir Roscoe Berwin Cornfoot, who is the founder of the Court Elite. Uh, he, uh, Cornelius calls him a man of honor and a true adventurer. Cornelius has nothing but the utmost respect for Sir, for Sir Roscoe. Uh, not only did he create and command the Court Elite uh, when the Civil War started out, Sir Roscoe saved Crimson Marshal uh, Jarvis Gallant from a cannon blast, which earned himself a knighthood. It seems like Cornfoot typically creates his racing team with the same criteria he used to create the Cord Elite, and he claimed the victor's purse in the first ever Atroposian circuit. Uh, and Cornelius seems to think that the first race was the last race that was played mostly by the rules. Um, walking in is uh, Isaac Rosny, Hugo Witherton, and Edith Graham. Isaac is kind of a young, like, uh, 20-something adventurer. Um, he's got a, a large, like, uh, red trench coat, and he's got, like, his his gear is kind of like a mix of, like, uh, modern and what seems like modified old uh, tech. Um, and, uh, like, almost like he's got, like, some trinkets and artifacts built into his tech. You know that this this trio is a treasure hunting trio, uh, diving into dangerous tombs and uh, long forgotten uh, uh, catacombs uh, to find like different ancient trinkets and stuff. Uh, Edith Graham kind of has a similar uh, amount of stuff on her that is a mix of like utilitarian new tech mixed in with some old tech and like some trinkets. Uh, she's got uh, tattoos up her forearms. Um, she's wearing uh, fingerless gloves and kind of a, uh, a like form fitting jumper almost um, like that uh, ties up in like in a halter top. And uh, she's, you think that she probably is from uh, Paldoran descent because of the dark color of her skin uh, and hair. Um, and, uh, in between them is, uh, very, uh, uh, comparatively very short and just in general, on average, a short, uh, man, uh, named Hugo Witherton, who is older than the other two by just a little bit, maybe in his thirties. Um, and he's got a uh, kind of frazzled hair, uh, like worn spectacles and he's wearing like kind of ill-fitting, uh, like, uh, uh, like an ill-fitting jacket and pants and just like he has like a utility belt with like all these different pouches and stuff and like uh and like a couple like things that are holding like tomes on his waist and then like around his back he's got this giant bag that has all these scrolls stuffed in it and uh and under his arm he has like a, a like two or three like really big books um and he looks like a little like awkward walking behind these other two like holding all this stuff uh, Cornelius says this is the best treasure hunting trio Evan Glass has ever seen. Uh, and they've never scored quite as big as the Court Elite did back in their adventuring days. Uh, but these Tomb Raiders are worthy of notice by Sir Roscoe. Um, Hugo is the brains of the three. And that's actually saying a lot because both Isaac and Edith are extremely intelligent and resourceful adventurers. Uh, but Cornelius says Hugo's brain is a seems to be a bottomless pit for storing information. Uh, Isaac and Edith are usually the ones who actually physically brave the trap-filled temples and uncharted caves uh, that they find. Um, and while Cornelius is sure that this team's integrity is spoken for by Roscoe, so he doesn't necessarily think that they'll break any rules, um, he does make a note that uh, Roscoe has always pushed the limits of rules. So... If Jollypot was to make a guess, he would say this team may not outright try to kill you, but he expects that they'd employ dirty tricks to put you behind them. 
just like barely scraping by the rules of the race. Would it be fair to say that Barnabas has ran into them on his adventures before? I wouldn't say uh, Isaac or Edith, but I think you've probably met Hugo Witherton before. Um, because Hugo very often does like a lot of the studying and stuff, uh, or at least like pulls the long hours when it comes to studying. And right. in your adventures, Barnabas, you kind of have to do that and do the, uh, the like dungeon diving as well. Um, so I think in times like at one time in Tordrian at one of the like big libraries there, uh, you, uh, like met Hugo. I don't, th- I don't know if you guys had a, like, any like particular real interaction, but you, you know him. Uh, and I think, I think, uh, in the past when you met him, uh, he seemed to think you were studying for, uh, a book you were writing, not for an adventure you were going on. <laughs> Where are all the novels I took out adventuring? Uh, they don't get my back apparently. <laughs> Uh, well, no, you, you remember when you, the reason that people think that is because you take the nobles on like light adventures. You take them on like safaris and stuff because they're like, you don't want them to die. (laughs) So (laughs) that's true. So you like, you bring them on these little, like, kind of like your, your failing was that you brought these nobles out on like adventuring light. You brought them out on like basically theme park rides. Yeah. Part of us is like a theme tour guide. Yeah. Exactly. And so like they just think like because of that, people think that you're actually fake and that like you just are making a character and that you're a very creative writer. And so Hugo seems to kind of talk down to you because he's like, well, I'm an actual adventurer. And you were like, I'm an actual adventurer, too. And he's like, yeah, sure, old man. I'll show them. <laughs> I'll show them all. Uh, they walk in as you guys are finishing your story. And uh, Hugo actually um, says something to Isaac. And Isaac looks over at you guys and grins, and uh, they saunter on over to you. <laughs> and uh, Isaac puts both hands on the table, like leaning down to you guys. He's like, "Ah, Team Jollypot, is it?" Yes, we are. Oh man, I, I knew Jollypot was waiting a long time before he picked his team, but I guess he just kind of panicked with you three. I, I have a question. Yeah, where's Edith in this? Uh, Edith. So basically, um, uh, Isaac is dead center. Uh, Edith is like over his right shoulder and Hugo's a little, a couple steps back and to his left. You said Edith looks of Paldoran descent. Yeah. Would I have any way of knowing whether or not she lived on a storm ship? Uh, roll cutting for me. That's a 36. What? <laughs> 12, 12, 11 plus one. Wow. Jesus Christ. That's a tier four success. Um, you you size her up, um, and uh, immediately, like you can tell by the way that she carries herself, that she is a uh, she is a very strong willed, uh, which is uh, a Paldoran trait in general, um, uh, but uh, not necessarily one that that specifically indicates that she lived on one of the storm ships. She may have just picked it up from her parents, um, but like some of the tattoos on her arm, like there's like one or two lines in there that you see that like, um, you see the symbol for the purity aloft, um, uh, on it, which is one of the storm ships. Uh, one of the ones that didn't take to pirating. And, uh, in addition to that, um, you also can tell just like by the way that she like has this, uh, this like utilitarian jumpsuit, uh, on and like really strapped in and her like, 
her, like everything about her is very like clean and precise, um, almost militaristic. And due to her age, you're not sure that she really would have served in any military. So you have to assume that maybe she picked it up being on a storm ship. Uh, so you're, you're, you're like at like 98% sure that like she grew up on the purity okay. or the purity aloft. Um, so Isaac is talking right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like he's three quarters of the way through his sentence and I, uh, interrupt him and talk to Edith. Uh, how long did you, when did you leave purity aloft? She raises an eyebrow and, uh, looks at you and kind of like sizes you up in a similar way, the way you were sizing her up. And she's like, I left there in my teens. Didn't really take. Yeah. It's kind of stuffy. Yeah. I, uh, moved to Evangelist around then. And Isaac like looks over his shoulder and is like, Edith. And she goes, what? (laughs) And, uh, and he kind of like bolsters himself up a little bit and he goes, uh, he tries to continue with what he was saying. Being like, I mean, look, you got, you got a I interrupt him. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) I hold my ale up and I say, look, young man, I've been going down in dungeons and ruins and you hear Hugo exploring go. <laughs> the world long before you're even born. And then I just take a drink and kind of walk away. Uh, well, so you, <laughs> uh, you're in a booth, so you try to move to, to like stand up and, uh, uh, Isaac kind of like moves to block you and he goes, even if that was true, you're well past your prime age, old man, you're going to pull something out there. Ah, oh, no, you see, Proper stretching as well as regular exercise helps prevent (laughs) sprains Uh, and strains. You see, it's very important because you won't always have time to stretch, but regular exercise uh, makes your body used to the rigors of adventuring. You see, I have an obstacle course. (laughs) Uh, Isaac just starts laughing over you and like he's like almost losing it. And Edith is kind of chuckling, too. Uh, And uh, Hugo is laughing as well. And he's like and Hugo's like, see, I told you. And Isaac's like, you weren't kidding. Oh, man, you guys are going to have to be real careful out there. Don't let this old kook get you killed. Come on, guys, let's go. And uh, it's nonfiction. (laughs) Uh, uh, Isaac turns and Hugo turns and Edith lingers for a second and, uh, uh, like looks at, uh, looks at you, Zeke and is like, it's too bad you had to end up on team Jollypot. Uh, yeah, you know how it is though. If they can't pull their own weight, leave them behind and, uh, turns I, uh, to walk away. I kind of like raise the mug towards her and take a drink. Uh, she nods and, uh, catches up with the other two who are going upstairs. They seem like such a good adventuring trio be a shame if something happened to them i take a drink <laughs> as as they're walking away uh uh like door opens up to the side of the bar and uh an automaton on like a unicycle wheel holding a <laughs> holding a tray uh comes out and on that tray is two whole turkeys <laughs> uh and it like zips out like kind of like a little more fast than you would want something holding like such a large tray and it like manages to balance itself by your table and sets the tray down. And it's like, please enjoy. Oh, I will. And I dig in and it goes and zips away. What do you need two turkeys for? Well, I might get hungry later, (laughs) but you could just order it later. But what if I just stay hungry the whole time? You're tiny. 
well, not that little. And I just like I'm stuffing my face at this point. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> you guys can have some. I mean, just, you know, like make sure there's some left in case I get hungry later. <laughs> uh, there's a, there's a voice from uh, a couple booths over. Um, and you, uh, you hear Hannah Solzin, uh, shout out to you, Barnabas being like, Hey old man. I kind of glance over to see who's yelling. So Hannah, uh, is wearing a, um, uh, like black vest open and like, uh, uh, a like white, uh, just like normal shirt. And she's got, uh, black, uh, pants and black boots that are kicked up onto the table that they're sitting at. Um, she's leaning back kind of like with one arm stretched out. Uh, you can see on her hip, she's got like a nice, like, uh, a very nice pistol. Um, and she's taking a drink and, uh, she's like, sees you make eye contact with her and she goes, what was that all about? Is that like your nephew or something? <laughs> Takes another drink. <laughs> no, just a couple of young punks who don't quite realize what they're getting into, I don't think. Yeah, he looked like an asshole. <laughs> oh, I assure you, he is. <laughs> you see, there's this uh, rumor going around that I, in fact, did not go on any of the adventures I wrote about. See, writing about my adventures has been one of my biggest mistakes. So. <laughs> Uh, she kind of shrugs and goes, eh, someone talks to me like that. I punch him across the face. Takes another oh, sip. I'm sure there'll be plenty opportunity during the race. Fair no enough. No need to cause a scene here in the tavern. Uh, and then, and then she goes, hey, little man. <laughs> I like food in hand and mouth, like look up. <laughs> oh, did she come over? No, no, no. She's still shouting from a, from a booth over. Oh, Okay. Uh, she's kind of like leaning out from the booth, looking at you guys. If your eyes are a little bit bigger than your stomach, Shurkata here can help you out with that. And, uh, the elf kind of like peeks up over and looks at, looks at like the food and like licks his lips and goes, yeah. <laughs> Just like order your own turkey. And I go back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thank you though, I guess. Nom, 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 nom. <laughs> Hannah, Hannah shrugs and says something to Lucius, who like giggles. <laughs> uh, and Talia, when you when you look over at Lucius, you realize like sitting next to him on the booth, there's like what looks like kind of almost like a trash can. It's like a tube with a lid. And uh, as he's like talking to Hannah, the lid uh, pops up, and uh, two little like robotic eyes look at you, and like they're like little like uh, white glowing eyes, but then they like blink, like turn on and off, and mm-hmm. then they and then. Kink, the, the lid goes back down. <laughs> oh, he's shy. <laughs> uh, you guys do anything else? There's another uproarious uh, shout from the table playing cards as uh, as Galen uh, apparently starts taking a lot of Augustus's money. <laughs> yes, that makes sense. You'd think the guy would have like read the dossier. I don't know if everybody gets one. That's fair. Yeah, Jolly Pot specifically did all this research for you guys. So we could have an advantage, you know, since we've only been able to prepare for 12 days. I mean, how hard could it be to just go around the world? It's really not that hard. Have you ever heard of the Atroposian circuit before this at all? I was it's, busy. It's, it's quite famous and, you know, people die. I'm going to eat my turkey. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> Say, Zeke, 
think you could spare a spare a leg? Yeah, you, you guys can have some. Ah, uh-huh. thank you. <laughs> oh, I don't eat meat. I only eat fish. Fish is still meat, you know. No, it's a different kind of meat. It comes from the water. It doesn't count. They're still living creatures with families and hopes and dreams. <laughs> I don't think that's how fish work. I uh, think they're too dumb. You've obviously never talked to fish. Can you talk to fish? I've heard there no, are people that can do that. <laughs> no? Oh. You see, I've spoken with Aiden before. Oh, yes, in your book, oh, Amusing Aidens and Adventures uh, with Them. Barnabas starts just <laughs> chugging his beer. <laughs> There's a, a shout from the poker table as um, uh, Ezra Keaton kind of like reclines in his chair, stretching back, and he's like, we need some new blood over here. Any, any takers? And he points at like your table. Don't do it. What are the stakes? Oh, uh, Bayern's uh, uh, five dukes. We're playing low ball here, and Gabriel or and uh, Galen kind of like snorts and goes, "Yeah, tell me about it." And uh, taps his uh, his cigar into an ashtray. Uh, oh, if you want to play, I'll just give you five dukes. Oh, that, <laughs> I I think I'll be fine. It's a very small loss. Maybe make some friends, get some information. Oh, just be very. Perhaps careful. I'll join you if you have an extra cigar. Uh, Galen puts the, his cigar back in his mouth, takes a big puff of it, and then goes, nah, not without you winning it from me. I never give anything away. I don't have to. And uh, Augustus goes, oh, God, this guy, please join us. <laughs> and I, and I he, he reaches into and... his jacket and pulls out like one of his hand-rolled cigars. <laughs> ah, thank you very much. And I, I buy in. All right. Um, how are you playing this game of poker? Are you trying to cheat? Are you trying to uh, win honestly? Uh, how do you play? What's your play style? Barnabas plays honestly, I think. Uh, he does, especially since it's a lower game, he sees it as less of a money-making opportunity and more as a social sort of thing. Okay. Especially with the buy-in being this low. If he loses five uh, dukes, it's not going to, it's not a big deal for him. He's, um, though he is going to watch out for potential cheating and possibly let the others deal with it. So, okay. Uh, so as, uh, you're being dealt, uh, your hand, uh, you're sitting in between, uh, Ezra and Augustus, uh, Galen is, uh, across from you, uh, as is Gabriel Coot. Um, everyone's, uh, gets their cards. I need you to, uh, roll cunning to see how well you play. Uh, tier two. Okay, uh, and then you said you were trying to keep an eye out for anyone cheating? Yeah. Uh, go ahead and roll uh, cunning for noticing. Also tier two. Uh, so um, you're playing through a hand, you buy in, um, you get raised, you call. You, you have a decent hand, actually. You think uh, you, think you got a, a pretty good um, like read of the, of the table. You're keeping a close eye on Galen, uh, and... Um, when the, all the cards are showed, uh, Galen barely pulled a, uh, a winning hand out at, in the last round of betting, and uh, he beats you soundly and uh, takes like half of your money. Uh, and Augustus goes, all night with this guy. All night. <laughs> uh, appears to be a pretty good card player. Uh, next hand. And uh, uh, Galen shrugs and goes, it's easy when you're, uh, when you're playing with a bunch of scrubs. And uh, uh, taps his, his cigar back in the ashtray. 
play uh, roll another cunning to see how well you do uh, in your uh, game theory. Another tier two at uh, seventeen. Uh, and then go ahead and roll uh, cunning to see if you can notice anything going on. Uh, eighteen, tier two. Uh, this time, uh, Augustus is playing very aggressively, um, and uh, you kind of get swept up in the in the betting race between him and uh, and Galen because uh, you got uh, again a pretty decent hand, and um, you think you can you can uh, uh, push him over the top by going all in. Um, and uh, Galen calls, and as he does, uh, he taps his cigar into the ashtray, and um, as he's putting it back in his mouth, it passes by his hand, and you you see him like with his pinky pull out a card from his sleeve and put it in his hand. I, as I see it, I grab his hand and pull the card out. Go ahead and roll uh, accuracy for me. Thirteen. Yeah, you you grab his hand. Uh, and he's like, Hey, what the hell? And, uh, and, uh, Ezra immediately jumps up and like is quick to like put his hand on his gun. And, uh, Gabriel just kind of like crosses his arm and smiles. And, uh, Augustus looks like confused and like, uh, like almost spits out his, uh, <laughs> uh almost spits out his cigar. And he, and he's like, he's like, what the hell? <laughs> I think I've discovered why. This gentleman's been so successful all night. And I pull the card out of the rest of his sleeve. Uh, you, you pull out uh, a, like a veritable deck. Uh, he has like, a, he has like a, a bracelet basically with a bunch of cards like uh, on the outside of it that he can like um, reach and grab. And like with slight hand motions, he could like turn the bracelet around and make it like so a different card is uh, available to him. It's got like four different cards in it. Um so yeah, you pull out this contraption he has that can like feed him cards and, uh, he pulls his hand away from you and he's like, if you can't notice that you're being grifted, what's it's, it's on you. It's not on me. And, uh, uh, Augustus like jaws his, uh, cigar from one corner of the mouth to the other. And, uh, Ezra gets like a little close to you and he's like, he's like got his like pistol, like half drawn out of his, uh, out of its, um, holster and he's like i think you should return to your friends grandpa ezra's like 19 <laughs> and galen goes yeah we can call it we can call it square you can take your five uh, duke buy-in if you're not wanting to play by our rules <laughs> and uh and augustus reaches over and like grabs the uh grabs the contraption he's like this is cool though i'll take this thanks <laughs> <laughs> and both galen and ezra are like what and like uh uh uh, Gabriel like laughs and, uh, Augustus puts his, uh, puts it like in his, uh, in his jacket as he's pulling it off of the chair and he pats you on the shoulder and he's like, thanks a lot, Gunsby. And, uh, Galen like is about to like make a move and Ezra like is about to pull his holster to like be like, you give that right back. And, uh, uh, like in the flash of an eye, um, Augustus has a pistol pointed at, uh, at Ezra and like, uh, and like a knife, like out in his hand that he didn't have before. And he's looking at, uh, at Galen. He's like, now listen here, folks, you ask, uh, you ask me, we all knew what we were sitting in on. We're all a bunch of cheating liars, right? Now this honest man here may have, uh, may have exposed your little rouge, but, uh, if you're asking me, the, the main reason I was 
I was playing a game with y'all is uh, figure out exactly what, uh, how he was cheating so I could take it for myself. Take a lesson from this, boys. Don't uh, bring anything to a card table you're not willing to lose. That's why I was going to bet turkey. <laughs> uh, and, uh, like, Ezra, like, doesn't even, like, he was going to draw his gun, but he was not qu- as quick as, uh, as Augustus. And then um, Galen, like, kind of sits there uh, looking at Augustus and, you know, just, like, stands there, like, angrily. And he's like, Gabriel? And Gabriel's like, you got yourself into this, man. <laughs> and um, Augustus... Uh, Reaches down, grabs his jacket, and uh, he goes, it's been a pleasure, gentlemen, <laughs> and uh, goes walking upstairs. <laughs> I return to our table um, with my money back. I sit down, and I, ah, it's been a while since there's been a seedy tavern brawl that I've been a part of. Unfortunately, this didn't go too far, but Unfortunately. it's exciting. Well, how late is it getting? <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, it's getting like in the, it's in the evening. Uh, and you see, uh, Galen and Gabriel, like Galen, Gabriel and Ezra, everyone in team Nightingale, um, uh, like splitting up the money and like giving, shooting you dirty looks. And, uh, Ezra seems like he's wanting to come over and like say something or do something. Uh, and, uh, like Galen's just like seething, uh, and, uh, Gabriel's just laughing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, and then, uh, Gabriel kind of grabs both of them from, uh, uh, like, uh, like their jackets and like pulls them with him to the, uh, to the stairway. Um, has, uh, team Adams left yet? Uh, they're just finishing up their drinks. Uh, and, uh, it seems like they're about to get ready to pack it in. Okay. Uh, before I go upstairs, uh, to turn in for the evening, um, I get up and I go, Mr. Stratford, right? Um... Yeah. Hi. I couldn't help but notice you've got a little um, shy uh, friend. Could I meet him? Oh, you're 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 talking about um, about Gearbox. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and uh, he kind of looks over at uh, Hannah um, and Shorkata. Uh, Shorkata doesn't even seem to notice and Hannah like kind of like rolls her eyes and like nods and, uh, Lucis, uh, uh, like beans and like takes, uh, takes the, like, uh, the like metal tube, which he had strapped onto his back as they were getting up. Mm-hmm. Uh, he takes it off of his uh, shoulders and, uh, uh, sets it down and, uh, like taps on the top and, uh, it goes ping and the top like, uh, pops open and this like <laughs> scrawny little robot that's like, uh, maybe like. You know, as it's very thin in its body, and uh, as it's like stepping up out of the tube, you can see like it it uh, must like fold in on itself. Um, it's got like a kind of a like dome shaped head, and uh, it like pops out, and its little like uh, headlight eyes like blink at you, and it's like, oh, it's nice to meet you too. Dig it, dig it. And it like looks at uh, Lucius, and he goes, uh, he. He doesn't talk or anything. I mean, he's just he's just a clockwork, but he's he's really helpful um, when it comes to repairs. Oh, he's a repair bot. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's kept uh, our our ship uh, afloat more than a few times. And uh, uh, Han- Hannah like uh, finishes her drink and is like collecting her stuff, and she's like, "No details, Stratford." <laughs> oh, oh, all right. Sorry to have. Overstepped. <laughs> um, no, we just don't like uh, like sharing our business with strangers. Oh, sorry, I've been so rude, Talia Nazari. <laughs> and I reach out my hand. 
Hannah looks at your hand and like brushes off her hand a little bit and like gives you like a, a, a smile and like clasps her hand with yours and shakes it and she squeezes nice and she's like, uh, Oh, it's a firm handshake. Good. That shows character. <laughs> she laughs. She goes, I like you, Talia. I like you as well. I'm so glad we're friends. <laughs> uh, and Lucius uh, uh, says, yeah, I, I made a, I made Gearbox um, uh, a few years ago. Um, you know, it's, he's, He's, he's pretty simple, really, but uh, but I like him. He keeps me entertained. Oh, that's good. Did you see the one that I came in with? Uh, yeah, the the big the big bronze or brass one. Yeah, yeah. He's not quite as old as you, as little gearbox here. You know, I only made him like a week ago. But um, yeah, he's he's quite fun. If you'd ever like to, you know. Um, He's a fuse box, so not as not as um, delicate, I suppose. But if you'd like to meet him at some point, he's very friendly. Uh, Lucius looks over at Hannah again, and Hannah goes, "No," <laughs> and shakes her head. And Lucius is like, "No, sorry, we have we have to prepare for the race. We have a lot of business to attend to." And uh, <laughs> and. <laughs> And Hannah goes, Lucius, and uh, uh, Shorkata reaches down and picks Lucius up and puts him on his shoulder. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> and, and Lucius is like, oh, oh. <laughs> and uh, uh, as he's being pulled up, he like grabs Gearbox by the hand and like kind of like throws him up in the air and Gearbox like contracts into like his dome head and falls into the tube. That's uh, And like the tube cl- shuts closed and then uh, Shorkata just like starts carrying Lucius away. He's like, I guess I'm going to bed. See ya. <laughs> Good night. We'll uh, see you tomorrow. Uh, and, uh, Hannah's like, like looks at you and like with a friendly smile and goes, listen, kid, you seem nice, but, uh, you know, you can back out of the race ahead of time if you need to, uh, it's no one's going to think less of you. It seems like you might, uh, be in over your head here. Oh no, I understand the competitive nature. I just believe that if someone's friendly and I'm friendly, then we can compete without, you know, hurting or killing one another. Uh, and she goes, yeah, well. I don't think everyone shares your mentality. Just uh, oh, of course not. And that would be silly. <laughs> just uh, watch your back out there, yeah. And uh, she, oh, like, that, that's why I have Gerald. She uh, nods to um, uh, Zeke. Uh, did you finish all the turkey? I am done with one and a quarter turkeys at this point. <laughs> and she says, "Are you uh, you taking that up to your room? Or are you going to finish that? Or no, you can have it. What? I'll get you another one. Wait, what? What?" I want this one. Oh, here. We'll just send you one. You can take it up to your room. What room are you staying in? You know, you can tell the bartender and then I will just pay for it. All right, then. Charity. Or not charity. A gesture of friendship. Yeah, we don't need charity. No, I, my mistake. <laughs> but, uh, it's usually charity. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Shorkata's appetite can uh, really make uh, your pockets a lot lighter. Cost so, me. Yeah. I, I, I know. I have many elves that live with at my house. Uh, yeah, we're in, uh, we're in room three. Excellent. I'll have one sent up. Uh, she kind of like eyes you a little bit, just trying to decide if like there's another like means to this and then like shrugs and goes, all right, see you guys at the starting line, I guess. Have a good night, Captain Solzen. She kind of like perks up and like, Captain Solzen, no no one ever calls me captain. (laughs) (laughs) And goes walking off. (laughs) They're nice. Yeah, they seem friendly enough. Don't offer my turkey to people. I could buy you two more turkeys. But this one's mine. (laughs) But you could have a new turkey. Miss Nazari, it's the idea of it. But you, if we make friends, 
the less chance there is they're going to try and kill us and then we'll have to kill them. Miss Nazari, this one thing I've learned in my non-fictional adventures is <laughs> all that would end up doing is you'd give them a turkey and they'd still try to kill you. You never know. I've heard about your safaris and I think they're very fun. And if there's ever a time in which you have an open space, I'd love to k go on one with you, of course. Let's survive but this safari first. <laughs> this is a bit more than your safaris that you take people on. <laughs> um, yeah, so you guys retire for the evening. I order the. I order two turkeys. Send two turkeys up to. Uh, <laughs> to room three. All right. With a note that says, "From Virtue Nazari, and a little son." <laughs> uh, and then it says underneath, "Team Jollypot." <laughs> I kind of I nibble on the remaining turkey for the rest of the night. Uh, so you guys get to your room. It's small, modest, but it's got three beds. Oh gosh. I didn't get my own room. How odd. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. I'll take the one by the window, thank you. I'm already, I've already jumped on it. Ah! Oh, thank you for, so for softening up my bed for me, Mr. Gunsby. <laughs> As you'll see, my things are already on it. You're crushing them a little, but that's all right. Uh, and and Gerald's just like sitting in a chair next to that bed that he's, he's put like your, your clothes just on. Just on the pillow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And he's like, he's just like in standby mode. His, uh, okay. his little rose colored eyes aren't lit up. <laughs> I tap him on his head and I say, good job, Gerald. And I take the key from him. Well, I take the, the middle bed, I guess. And I'd be sure to lay my rifle, lean it on the nightstand with also my revolver on the nightstand. Sure. Because there's a lot of shady characters in here. I, um, one end is the pillow and the other end is the turkey. And occasionally in the evening, I wake up and eat some of the turkey. <laughs> and then crawl back to the other end of the bed and go back to sleep. And during that, you hear, ha-ha. Ha-ha. So uh, uh, you guys wake up, and it uh, seems like... Uh, you like you step out in the hallway, and you see that a lot of the doors of uh, of, like... Like, it's like you're the last team out, basically. You got there a little late. Everyone else, like, woke up super early and, like, went off and did other stuff or went straight to Cornfoot Manor. Um, and you guys uh, walk your way down the stairs with your stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, like, a, you know, a, a few satyrs there who are, like, cleaning out the place. Mm -hmm. um, and they, like, uh, they greet you um, or they greet you and, uh, and uh, they have the radio on. And uh, you guys hear a broadcast. Excitement and adventure! The time has come again, dear friends. Today's dawn brings us the first day of the sixth annual Great Atroposian Circuit. The thrilling action-packed competition is set to take off today at sunset. Our intrepid adventurers are currently making their way into the mountains. Destination? Cornfoot Manor, the official meeting place of the Corps d'Elite. From there, they shall set forth on the journey of a lifetime. Who will take an early lead? Who will fall behind? Are any of our competitors unfortunate enough to meet their peril in the dangers of the road? Stay tuned and find out first from our continual coverage of this monumental exhibit of bravery and hubris. As always, I'm Guy Finnegan, and you're listening to Gilded Monogle International Radio.
Majestic as fuck. Uh... <laughs> And uh, you guys hear that broadcast as you're setting up, and uh, you head up to the mountains. It's quite a hike. Um, it actually takes you guys longer than you expected to get up there. Um, and uh, eventually you crest around like uh, a little like rock formation, and you see uh, like built into the side of the mountain uh, this magnificent manor. Uh, it almost looks like cathedral-like in its construction. It's huge. Um, and, uh, it is, um, uh, there's a gate, uh, and it, and it, uh, has like the core elite like emblem on it and it is manned by two automatons who, when you guys arrive, like immediately like, uh, open the gate for you and let you in and you walk through a very large like courtyard with like a winding, uh, pathway leading up to the stairs into this manor, um, which again have two automaton servants that, uh, open the door for you immediately when you show up. And outruns Cornelius Jollypot, uh, your benefactor. Uh, you guys haven't seen him for a couple weeks. Um, he is, uh, just as you remember him, a portly old fellow uh, with kind of a wiry, untamed uh, hair on the sides of his head as the top of his head is bald. And he's got big, like, uh, bushy mutton chops. Um, he's... Um, uh, got this beaming smile on his face. He's wearing a half moon spectacles, uh, and wearing kind of a like purple and blue, uh, like colorful attire. And like in his breast pocket, he's got all these like gadgets poking out. Um, and, uh, he's like wearing like a, a like bracelet slash like glove that like looks like a strange contraption. And he like, he waves at you guys. He's like, Oh yes, you made it. Excellent. Excellent. I was beginning to worry. Hello, Mr. Jollypot. <laughs> Good to see you again. Ah, Virt Virtue Nazari, ah, pleased to see you again. And he, uh, he kisses your, your hand. Uh, no need for such formality. And he's like, Barnabas, Barnabas. He clasps uh, hands with you and shakes it. And he's like, and uh, Ezekiel, my friend. Hey. And what is, what is this? This isn't one of Porchinovich's automatons. What is this, this thing following you? Oh, no, this is Gerald. I made him. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Gerald, you made him. Uh, yes, I made him last week. I just couldn't sleep after seeing all the things at the Adventist Fair, and I just was like, well, I might as well try to make one of my own. It's just, do you mind if I take a look? Sure. Uh, he reaches in his uh, pocket and pulls out a contraption, which he uh, clips to his, uh, his glasses, um, and it uh, telescopes out, uh, making that one eye look very big. Um, and uh, he immediately finds the access panel on Gerald and opens it up, and he goes, Oh, oh, it's a fuse box run by Aether. Yes, yes, I forget. You are quite skilled with Aether technology. Uh, Self-taught, of course. You're, oh, this is, this is marvelous. You made this yourself. Yes, I did. The it arms are a bit big, aren't they? Yes, I could only find four legs, so I changed them to, I adapted them to make them more. Oh, how innovative. I love it. It's great. <laughs> Oh, well, and he closes it up and takes the contraption off of his spectacles, and he's like, "Nice to meet you, Gerald." Whoop, 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 whoop. He says it's very nice to meet you as well. Yes, well, uh, we need to uh, we need to uh, move our way into the great hall. It's almost time for the opening ceremony. How exciting! Lead the way, and I start heading towards the great hall. Uh, so as you guys walk in, uh, you're walking through a, a large uh, vaulted ceiling hallway with like all sorts of artwork. Some of the core delete, and some that's just like 
really amazing artwork. Uh, there's all these like artifacts and suits of armor, like all just like, you know, it's like you're walking into a castle basically. Um, uh, like how lavishly it's decorated. Um, and like one big tall, like uh, double door room, uh, like creaks open and, uh, out walks, uh, some people you recognize from the dossiers. It is team Towley. With their benefactor, you see uh, the first ever court elite member uh, besides Cornelius Chalipot that you've met in the flesh, except for maybe you, Barnabas. You may have seen a couple of them, though you don't really know them personally. Uh, Professor Newt M. Towley, uh, who is often mistaken for a large gnome. He's only like a foot and a half taller than you, uh, Zeke. Uh, Newt M. Talley is the only professor to teach top-tier classes in more than one ivory-tier cl- college in more than one country in Walusia. Uh, he's traveling around the world constantly uh, teaching courses. Like, Monday he has a course in t- uh, Tordrian. Tuesday he has a course in Evangles that he runs. Like, he just, like he's constantly uh, bouncing back and forth. Um, he is the most brilliant and innovative archaeologist uh, Relusia has ever seen. Uh, he's actually responsible for deciphering most of the dead languages that scholars study today. And he always takes the top students in his classes as his team each year. Um, he's more interested in what his teams are able to discover along their journey than if they win the race or not. Um, two years running, running, his teams have uncovered great archaeological finds in the Izaden deserts. And all of the credit, of course, goes to him for his keen eye in young, for young scientific minds. With him is his team, uh, Desmond Cumberbatch, Mary Ann Smallthorne, and Professor Franklin Carter. Uh, according to your dossiers, um, uh, these are the two best students that uh, Tally had this year. Um, Cumberbatch is described as an arrogant, arrogant twig, um, but still a genius. And Mary Ann Smallthorne is, uh, described as a woman consumed by her studies. Uh, Cornelius notes that she treats every interaction and every experience as an archeological test. Um, the man with them, Franklin Carter, is actually one of Newt's oldest colleagues. Uh, he's accompanied every one of Newt's teams, uh, every year in the Atroposian circuit. Uh, His task is to protect them and guide them as they cut their teeth in their first archaeological expedition. Cornelius says they may not be expressly interested in the race, but he does say Franklin is a man who who one should avoid crossing. Uh, He is determined to protect these scientific minds and will not hesitate to use lethal force to do so. And uh, they see you, uh, Tally is like, oh, yep, this way, this way. And uh, Franklin Carter steps behind him. He's wearing a, a like, a tan trench coat. He's got, like, a, a nice, like, high-knotted uh, ascot. Uh, he has, like, kind of caramel-colored skin, and he wears these kind of slightly tinted uh, spectacles, uh, round spectacles on the end of his nose. And uh, slung over his shoulder is a rifle, and strapped to his hip is a pistol. Um, next to him is all up in a proper like dress, um, kind of weird attire for adventuring. <laughs> Doesn't look like someone who's going to be like roughing it, uh, is, uh, Marianne Smallthorne. She's wearing a nice little hat on the side of her head. Um, and, uh, and she's, you know, got her hair all done up nice. She's wearing, uh, uh glasses as well. Um, and she's clutching a, a book, uh, to her side. And, um, then Desmond Cumberbatch is wearing, uh, uh, like nice, almost aristocratic looking, uh, attire. Um, his hair is, uh, kind of wild. Like he probably just like doesn't bother to like wash or tame it really. He just like wakes up and studies or something and he's wearing a large round spectacles. Uh, he's got like a very pointed features. Um, 
and uh, uh, Tally almost bumps into Cornelius. It's like, oh, oh Cornelius, hey, uh, it's time, it's time for the opening ceremony. And uh, Cornelius says, yes, yes, I was just bringing my team. Uh, this is uh, Ezekiel, uh, Talia, uh, and Barnabas Gunsby. Pleasure to meet you. De- Desmond uh, kind of grins and goes, ah, uh, the 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 author. Uh, ad- adventurer. I think uh, I think one of my uncles went on one of your safaris. He said it was quaint, and he kind of like smiles a pompous smile at you. Well, I can't. Don't want to take them on too grand of an adventure. Got to make sure they make it home. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, it's uh, a great entertainment service you run, and uh, uh, Franklin uh, shakes hand with Cornelius like Cornelius. Uh, and he's like, yes, Franklin, yes, nice to see you again. And, uh, and this is, uh, Mary Ann. Yes. Uh, and, and she's like, yes, uh, pleasure to meet you, uh, Mr. Jollypot. And, uh, uh, she kind of curtsies and, uh, uh, she turns to you, Ezekiel, and she goes, uh, Ezekiel, is it? Yes. Yeah, that's me. I, uh, I happened to be at the Inventors Fair and I saw you flying in, uh, Mr. Jollypot's, uh, exhibit. That was me. Yep. Yeah, that was uh, that was quite daring. Um, where did you learn to fly like that? Uh, the Hurricane Wars. Oh yes, you're Paldoran. That's right. Um, what is it like growing up on one, on on uh, on a storm ship like that? Cramped and structured. Uh, and Newt is like, now Marianne, Marianne, we must we must move. We we have a we have a, a timetable. We need to we need to be in the Great Hall. And uh, um, Franklin uh, like kind of like guides her away from you. And uh, then Team Tally starts walking down the hall, and um, Cornelius turns to you guys and goes, Now, uh, before we, we move into the Great Hall, uh, the, the three of you have uh, read through the dossiers, yes? Yes, multiple times. Excellent, excellent. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any questions before we begin? I mean, it's, uh, once we step into that Great Hall, uh, the race is imminent. Do we have to carry Gerald across the starting line? <laughs> 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 he goes, yes, that's, that's quite a predicament. Uh, he is quite large. Um, perhaps if you were to uh, have him, his, uh, his arms dismantled, you could, in fact, carry him across the, the starting line. Uh, Do we have no, to? No, you know what? I don't think you have to. Yes, I think, I think an argument can be made that he could be disassembled and carried, and so uh, it's okay that he's starting the race. Assembled. He's not a he's not a vehicle of any type, so you're not gaining an advantage in that regard. Uh, in fact, he may even slow you down. So I think uh, I think uh, this is all in good sporting fun. Yes. Good. And as he's talking um, uh, down the hall, there's a cling 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 as a uh, um, a suit of armor is knocked over, and you see behind you uh, rushing up the hall um, is uh, Team Basington. Led by uh, the gnome, uh, Reverend Isaiah Basington. Um, you remember in your dossiers, uh, Jolly Pot said, small stature, large spirit. Um, Isaiah was a devout member of the Church of Free Will long before Sir Roscoe was even born. Uh, Isaiah's primary role in the Corps uh, during their Golden Age was as their alchemical savant. Um, he's as good at concocting a potion as he is at stirring up a crowd at service. And Isaiah is 
is a colorful character who seems to entertain Cornelius to no end. Uh, the way Cornelius uh, paints him in his notes, Isaiah is a harmless old gnome uh, who usually just uses the race as a platform for the free will movement. Um, and with him is his team, uh, Theodore, Fisk, and Heathrow. These are three of Basington's favorite mask goers, always good contributors to the church, and these three actually petitioned Isaiah for a chance to enter the race, fancying themselves quite the adventurers. Uh, Isaiah agreed as long as they agreed to spread the word of free will along their journey. Uh, Cornelius has actually asked around uh, in all of the circles he knows about these three, and he can't find any information on them. Uh, Cornelius doesn't know which is more weird, if these three gentlemen are uniquely talented at keeping a low profile, or if they're just that remarkably dull that no one's even bothered to ask their names besides Isaiah. Either way, their involvement and existence in the race is a puzzlement. <laughs> and they seem to have just knocked over a suit of armor. Heathrow is kind of larger and has a shaved head. Uh, Fisk is uh, actually shorter than the other two, and he's got like a bowl cut. And uh, Theodore is kind of in between, very scrawny, uh, and he's got like wiry, curly hair that uh, is uh, like sticking right up. Um, and they're like stumbling over each other and, um, uh, Heathrow's foot goes in the helmet and like, he's like stumbling and like kicking it around. And, uh, as Fisk tries to help him, uh, he spins around and like his gun goes flying off and, uh, hits Theodore in the face and Theodore like bumps into the wall and like almost, like almost knocks over a big, like archaic looking painting. And, uh, Basington's like, gentlemen, gentlemen, please, we must hurry. <laughs> This is my favorite team. <laughs> uh, and they start straightening each other up, uh, straightening themselves up. And uh, uh, Fisk goes to like smack Heathrow, who ducks. And then uh, Fisk instead smacks Theodore. <laughs> <laughs> like they're trying to like put the suit of armor back up, and it's like not easy. And, and Basington's like, No, one of the servants will take care of it. We must go. Come on, come on. Hurry this way. And, uh, and, the, and they, uh, they come running off and they, uh, they go running by you guys, actually. Uh, they don't really stop to say hi or anything. Uh, <laughs> but, but Basington, as he does, he goes, he's like, oh, hey, Cornelius, let's go. And Jolly Pot's like, yeah, sure, right behind you. I love that little man. <laughs> so um, if, if you don't have any more questions, I suppose we should move into the Great Hall. Onward. Uh, as you guys enter the Great Hall, it is, in fact, very great. Uh, it is huge. Um, and it's got the entire ceiling is actually like stained glass artwork. And uh, like the light is shining through and like painting the entire hall and like this, this like beautiful, like, uh, uh, like kaleidoscope of colors. Um, all around the uh, walls, um, there's just food and drink galore, like a feast. Um, and in each corner, there is one automaton servant standing uh, on standby. You, uh, you enter in and you see uh, everyone's kind of like positioning their uh, teams up on these pedestals. Um, and uh, you see the other five teams that you guys uh, haven't had the chance to meet yet. Uh, you see Team Torchinovich, um, which is actually a team of automatons um, who, created by Nestor Torchinovich, one of the most brilliant minds uh, in the automaton industry in Relusia. Um, he's using this year's Atroposian circuit as a chance to showcase, uh, his latest line of fuse box automatons. Uh, he calls these, uh, this line true automatons. Um, today's leading, uh, fuse box, de fuse box designs are considered to be the pinnacle of uh, automated intelligence and Jollypot 
is pretty sure that Nestor Torchinovich uh, intends to push those boundaries by making like a true intelligence in the body of a fuse box with these models. Um, there's uh, the gold, uh, the gilded gold uh, uh, Verz, uh, who is standing very properly, being tweaked by Torchinovich right now. Uh, there's um, uh, Gina, who uh, is like sta in standby, um, her disconnected limbs being held up above the ground with a graviton orb that kind of circles slightly above her head. Um, and then next to her, down like by her ankle, is uh, the gnome sized Veet. Uh, Vers stands for Variable Empathetic Relations System. Uh, he's designed to entertain and socialize with his owners and care a great deal about a person's personal life to serve as their very own automaton buddy. Uh, Gina is a graviton induction neutralization automaton, uh, an intelligent and remarkably graceful security automaton that uses that graviton orb as part weapon and part marionette for her disconnected limbs. Uh, and then Vite is a versatile exploration and espionage tool, uh, extremely durable and disproportionately strong for its size. This automaton doubles as a brute worker and a clever spy bot. Um, you see Torchinovich kind of working on them. Uh, uh, he's got like, you know, uh, a like monocle, um, uh, like monocle eye patch. That's like, you know, letting him like look into the finer workings of these. Um, and, uh, he seems to be having a conversation with Verz as it's happening. You also see Team Cups, um, who is led by Clementine D.D. Cups, uh, who is a, a baroness and not actually an original member of the court elite. Uh, she was given entry to the group when her husband, Sir Reginald Dingby Caesar, passed away. Um, Cornelius never really trusted her uh, because Sir Dingby Caesar was a good friend of his, and the circumstances of his death were very suspicious. And her team is uh, three equally beautiful uh, women uh, around the age of, uh, of like 20, uh, Josephine, Phaedra, and Rosalind. Uh, in, in the dossiers, they're also referred to as the Rose Petal Sisters. Uh, they were previously a traveling circus act, and the Rose Petal Sisters uh, are apparently something to, be, to behold. Uh, Josephine has a way with animals, able to perform with them as an extension of her own body. Uh, Phaedra is a crack shot and would always uh, entertain... Uh, uh, circus goers with her insane trick shots. Um, and uh, Rosalind uh, is a dancer who moves with a grace that would even make a, a Farishta look sluggish. Um, oh, I don't like her. They uh, uh, are being like uh, talked to very, very fervently by, uh, by Clementine. Um, off to the side, uh, in uh, you see Dr. Octavius Odlin, who is... Somewhat uh, disconcerting to look at. Uh, he's he's wearing um, a tricorn hat over a plague doctor mask, um, and actually, there's no part of exposed skin showing. Uh, his uh, his trench coat um, goes up in a cowl under his mask and hat, um, and uh, goes all the way to the floor. You and like he looks like he's gliding as he moves, um, and uh, he seems to be working on, for lack of a better word, uh, his three, uh, his three adventurers, uh, or in the dossier, Cornelius was not afraid to hide how uncomfortable he was with Octavius Odlin. Uh, the man was a practitioner of twisted experiments long before the Corps retired their lives of adventuring. Uh, afterward, he hid away, actually, hardly staying in contact with his former allies, and his presence during the Civil War was only seen in the soldiers on various battlefields sporting hideous bioflux augmentations. Odlis was the inventor, uh, the inventor of the bioinvigorator, 
and is the leading mind in bioflux manipulation, writing some of the top quoted publications on the subject. Uh, he always uses the race as a way to test his latest experiments. Last year, Cornelius could have sworn that one of Odlin's team members was a risen cadaver. Um, Due to Odlin's incredibly secretive nature and his ability to work in the shadows, Cornelius actually has very little information regarding the composition of Odlin's team this year um, and is only able to tell you their, in quotes, names. Subject 124, Jasper. Subject 217, Solomon. And subject 334, Enoch. Now, looking at these three, you're not sure which one's which, um, but uh, there's one who uh, is covered in, like, clockwork contraptions that goes over his uh, his face and eyes, um, like, almost like uh, clockwork goggles. Um, uh, Talia, you would almost assume that those eyes are functional eyes outside of his body. Okay. Um, the only part of him that you see that is uh, flesh is the lower bottom part of his face, which is exposed, um, and his neck. Um, otherwise, everything is covered in this like tightly strapped leather and clockwork. And uh, then there's uh, a much, much taller one uh, who is very broad shoulder, very muscular. Um, you can see what part of him is at least human uh, or at least fleshy is you can see his neck and part of his chest uh, as like the, the V of his shirt uh, comes to under his vest. Uh, he has strapped to his back a gigantic like cannon looking of a gun um and on his uh forearm there's like another like gun blaster contraption of some kind uh strapped on there um he is uh he's standing like almost disquiet uh almost unnervingly still um and his face is covered in uh in a gilded gold mask with a red uh lens over one side um, a red circular lens over one eye, and then the other eye is actually just like um, part a solid part of the mask. Um, so if he's looking at anything, he's only looking through that red lens on one side, and he's wearing a bowler cap. Um, uh, and then uh, next to him is an even larger creature maybe it's hard to say because uh, no part of this person's body is exposed, and he is like built like a, a whiskey barrel. He's super wide and huge. Um, and he's actually like got steam spewing behind him because he has these like almost organ tube looking, uh, uh, like contraptions sticking out behind his back on this giant pack he's wearing, which you're not sure if it's actually a pack for holding things or if it's like an engine that's strapped to his back and it's like spitting out, uh, uh, steam and, and, uh, it has like this one like large canister off to the side that you see like bubbling green liquid um and his uh his face is like covered in a, a part, what looks like part helmet part gas mask that like has a tube that goes back into that pack that's on his back and uh he's like just like extremely heavily armored in in this like thing he's wearing and you assume he's wearing you hope he's wearing and that this thing isn't what he is um and uh he's just standing there like uh down on one knee as uh as oddlin like reaches up uh to one of like that bubbling canister of like green uh liquid and like injects it with something and like the steam shoots uh out harder and if that wasn't disconcerting enough <laughs> you also see team holmes which is uh led by dr horace h holmes 
who is a farishta and um, provided much needed medical service during the core's uh, twilight or dur- during the core's uh, golden age. And once the core retired, Holmes became obsessed with human psychology. He actually uh, funded the creation of more than ninety percent of today's psychological uh, asylums. And Cornelius says that. Uh, Holmes has been consumed by his work, becoming almost as deranged as the poor souls he treats. Uh, He's known for his experimental and often morally questionable methods for treating mental illness. Cornelius never quite knows what Holmes' motives are, but Holmes seems enthralled by the competition of the race. Uh, His team actually won last year's uh, year's Atroposian circuit. Um, it's actually the same team he's fielding this year. Uh, there's three people standing nearby him, and it's weird because these three people and Holmes are just standing there patiently waiting. The like Holmes is just observing people, and these three are staring blankly off to the side. Uh, you know them as Stilton, Milton, and Hilton. Uh, these are three brothers who all sh- share uh, an almost unnerving resemblance to each other. Probably not twi- triplets, but... Maybe, maybe they are. It's hard to tell. They're very, very, they look very similar. Um, And what's even more like unnerving is that they're almost all wearing the same thing. Uh, They're wearing like long, uh, long tailed uh, like dress jackets with white ascots and white shirt, black dress slacks. And uh, they all have like a pocket watch chain. uh, And like they're just standing there, hands like crossed in front of them just like waiting. And uh, Cornelius doesn't know much about the history of these three brothers before their public appearance in Holm- uh, as Holmes's team last year, but he admits that he doesn't really want to know. Uh, Cornelius has only met them twice, and he says it's twice too many. They reportedly have a certain aura about them. They seem to glide when they walk. They finish each other's sentences all in the same monotone voice. And when they look at you, Cornelius says it feels like they can read every inch of your soul. Cornelius doesn't know what Horace H. Holmes did to these men, but he doesn't think that they're men anymore. An entry in the, in the dossier says they've become ghost stories that their mothers tell their children and occasionally haunt Cornelius's own dreams. Uh, basically Cornelius recommends extreme caution when interacting with these three. He can't speak to their methods or link them directly to any terrible doings, but he can't shake the idea that these men have an air of menace about them. Uh, and then finally, the, the final 12th team you see is, uh, team silver led by Lord Constable Maxwell Silver. Um, Lord Constable Silver uh, is a tall man with a long white beard. He wears a wide-brimmed hat, um, like a Western Evangelion hat, um, and his right arm uh, is like this giant um, uh, prosthetic uh, steam-powered uh, arm that like is a bit too large for his body. It like goes past his knees. Uh, the hand is almost as big as his head, and it's uh, it's like. It matches the, uh, like, slung giant revolver he has, like, slung across his body. Um, So, like, even an elf's hand would, uh, like, feel like this was a big pistol. And uh, he's uh, he's standing there, um, and he's uh, in his his un- Proto, or in his unaugmented hand, his normal hand, uh, he's holding a key ring. As he stands uh, next to his team... Um, according to the dossiers, 
after serving as the Corps' gunslinger uh, in their early years, Silver was the man behind the social movement for a higher standard of police force training. And he actually personally trained the Razul Constabulary uh, until recently when he attained the position of Lord Constable of Evangles. Since his less active years as Lord Constable, Maxwell has actually taken a greater interest in the Atroposian circuit, uh, and his teams have won three of the last five races. That means Cornfoot's team won the first, Maxwell won the next three, and then Team uh, Holmes won last year's race. Most attribute this uh, track record for Silver's teams uh, to the fact that his teams have arguably the best motivation to win. Maxwell takes some of the most colorful and dangerous convicts and enters them in the race, promising and always delivering them a full pardon for all of their past crimes if they win. Cornelius can't fault the strategy behind these actions, but... He says Silver's complete disregard for most of the rules and public safety is something that Cornelius cannot abide by anymore, which is why he's chosen you guys to best these criminals. Uh, so you have Blake Stoughton, Ventral Barbagus, and The Gentleman. <laughs> uh, Blake Stoughton is, one of the, uh, is a human and one of the most successful assassins in the history of Evangles. It actually took the constabulary 28 years to finally capture him, and the last four years of that was after Maxwell had begun his police reform. Um, legend has it Stoughton could shoot the beak off an eagle from a mile away with his rifle. Uh, Ventral Barbagus is a bloodthirsty psychopath of a farishta, uh, known to raid with Paldoran pirate vessels from time to time, Cornelius says uh, Ventral Barbagus's true passion is in senseless murder. Cornelius actually wrote specifically, he lost more than just his elf life in his Farishta conversion. Ventral lost his soul altogether. Finally, there's the metal deranged gnome known by all accounts simply as the gentleman. <laughs> Uh, he is an arsonist and demolitions expert, frequently partaking in terrorist activity for fun. Unlike Fiddleworth's mer mercenaries, Cornelius doesn't actually expect Team Silver to outright try to hunt and kill you. Um, he expects that they will kill you, though, if you get so much as too close, because these men are determined to see the finish line in ways most can't imagine. And with that, you have seen and met all of the people from the dossiers, all of the teams you are to compete against. We only met one of Team Fiddleworth. Ah, yes. Uh, you see the rest of Team Fiddleworth next to the giant, fat, bulbous man that is Duke Forbisher Tinnen Fiddleworth. He's actually sitting on a hovering chair because uh, he's so obese that he can't walk. And uh, he has like a respirator like built into his neck. And uh, he's got a, a big like bushy white mustache. And uh, next to him, you see the other two members of... Uh, the team. Um, you see Augustus Lodge, you recognize him. Uh, he is probably for shits and giggles wearing on the outside of his jacket the bracelet with the cards in it that he stole from Galen Rockwell. Um, and uh, then you also see Tank and Galahad Glynn. Uh, Tank is a large, muscular man who's basically wearing like almost like sporting, uh, like sports wear for his armor it's like it's just like it covers his chest and his shoulders and he's wearing like a gas mask over his face um and uh he's like got like military cargo pants and like strapped to his hips are two uh pistols um and he's covered in prison tattoos and uh galahad glenn is uh uh wearing what is easily recognizable to at least two of you uh as um a militarist 
uh, uniform from the Evan Glessian Civil War. Uh, it's now covered with like some. Uh, he has like kind of like an external pr- uh, prosthetic over one arm, uh, his left arm, um, that's kind of glowing with like an aether uh, energy on the shoulder. Um, and he's got like a monocle eye patch over one of his eyes, uh, and slung over his back is like a large, sophisticated-looking uh, assault rifle of some kind. Um, and uh, you remember back to your dossiers. Tank is a bloodthirsty bounty hunter with more than uh, more than a few notches on his belt. Um, and what's more scary than Tank's intimidating look is how coldly intelligent he seems to be in his execution. Um, Galahad Glynn was a soldier for the militarists who never really lost his bloodlust from the Civil War, and he took up mercenary killing nearly a day after the war was finished. Uh, Cornelius is convinced that these men will not hesitate to kill on sight. Um, he even uh, notes that Galahad Glynn takes a special kind of pleasure in murder. <laughs> so with that, you've, you've seen all of the people from your dossiers, uh, except for uh, Sir Roscoe Berman Cornfoot himself. And you actually notice that Team Cornfoot isn't in the hall yet. Um, and Jollypot uh, gestures for you all to uh, follow him. And uh, you actually are, uh, uh, he has you all climb up on top of this pedestal. Uh, uh, these, these pedestals basically make a ring in the center of the hall with one pedestal in the center. Um, and, uh, as you guys are getting there, um, everyone kind of like the din of conversation kind of quiets down as a door at the other end of the hall opens up and in walks Sir Roscoe Berman Cornfoot and Team Cornfoot. Uh, they saunter in through, uh, the, uh, uh, middle of the circle of all of your guys' pedestals. Uh, Team Cornfoot, uh, steps up onto the center pedestal and, um, uh, Sir Roscoe Berman Cornfoot turns to address all of you. Um, he is wearing a, uh, a long, like, uh, military, uh, uh, trench coat, um, with a high collar. Um, he has a very elegant sword, uh, on his hip. Um, and, uh, his, like, his entire outfit is just clean and, like, uh, just looks wealthy and strong. And he's got uh, a mustache kind of similar to yours, Barnabas, that uh, that uh, goes into his, uh, his into his chops and up into his hair. And he's got a kind of spiked uh, white hair. Um, and he goes, Welcome, all of you, to the sixth annual Great Atroposian Circuit. I, as you well know, am Sir Roscoe Bourbon Cornfoot. You are here because you have been given the privilege of representing a member of the Corps d'Elite in this historical competition. Years ago, when I founded the Corps, I sought out the boldest, the brightest, the best, and most able adventurers the world had to offer. You have been chosen because you are thought by your benefactors to possess the same qualities that made the Corps d'Elite the great establishment it is today. I have full confidence that each of you were chosen well, and this year will yet again be another fair and daring race. But this is more than a simple competition, is it not? You and your teammates are about to embark on the journey of a lifetime. You'll travel roads rife with danger and conquer them. You'll experience things few in this world even dream of. You'll rise to the challenges set before you with skill and determination, and come out the other side changed for the better. Any one of you could make history and claim the victor's purse. Though I must say I have my biases as to who I'm rooting for. And uh, he chuckles and there's a like polite like... <laughs> that... I politely chuckle as well. 
But all of you will become legends in your own right. This is our gift to you. This is the kinship we share. We are the brave elite who step forward without hesitation when we hear the call to adventure. So, let us step forward now, together, and begin this glorious undertaking. Let this hour mark the beginning of the sixth annual Great Atroposian Circuit! And at that, uh, there's applause. Uh, and the uh, stained glass roof of the Great Hall creaks and begins to open. Uh, and as soon as that happens, um, all the benefactors climb up onto the pedestals with their teams. And as soon as they do, uh, handrails pop up around the pedestals, uh, boxing all of you guys in. And um, all of a sudden, uh, from behind, there's a big <laughs> from on the back of the pedestals. And these giant balloons shoot out and begin to fill with air. And uh, all of the pedestals start to lift up into the sky, through the sky roof. Um, uh, these hot air balloons carrying you guys up above the Rikon mountain range um, and very quickly begin to uh, move into position uh, slowly in like a line spreading out. And uh, Cornelius is like sitting there and he's like, ah, great view, isn't it? This is so exciting. Look at everything you can see. Do you see this Ezekiel? Yeah, I can. I think some that guy is getting mugged down there. <laughs> Oh, don't be foolish. Indeed he is. You, <laughs> <laughs> um, you see uh, many of the, uh, a couple of the other teams seem surprised by this turn of events. Mm -hmm. um, uh, specifically, you see Team Nightingale, like uh, Ezra is like clutching on to, <laughs> <laughs> clutching on to like the handrail for dear life, like screaming like, what the hell? <laughs> uh, and Pattaya Nightingale, who is wearing like, gaudy like furs like purple furs and like a too tall of a top hat is like trying to yank him off of the uh uh off of the uh hand railing be like get your hold of yourself uh and uh uh soon you start to lose sight of the other teams as they begin to spread in uh in a straight line all along the mountain range um and uh jolly pop pulls out a spyglass and uh, begins looking at them he's like hey sure right so um the map uh, and he uh, reaches into his jacket and pulls out uh, 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 like uh, a large envelope. He goes, this has the map uh, of all of the checkpoints you need to go to. There's 10 checkpoints, and then you meet back in Razul. You have to go to each checkpoint in order. Uh, and he hands it to Talia. Thank you. <laughs> he goes, the first checkpoint is in the Dalvosian capital of Dayan. Oh. That's uh, exciting. And he, he goes, you're, you're to get out of the country of Evanglass within 36 hours or you'll be disqualified. Don't forget, uh, when you get there, uh, all of the instructions are in the pamphlet. Uh, just go to the checkpoints, check in with the representative, the court elite representative, and then move on to the next checkpoint. Remember to play by the rules now, mind you. Uh, he's shouting over like the, <laughs> of the of the like hot air balloon as it gets into position. No! Take these! And he pulls out um, uh, parachutes. All right. <laughs> uh, and he hands each one of you a parachute. He goes, you're to drop down to the base of the mountain range and make your way to Dayan. Uh, everyone, is, uh, everyone is doing the same. You'll be spread across the mountain range with equal distance to Dalvosia. Okay. I take my pack off and I put it on my front and then I put the parachute on. Well then, shall we? Well, you must wait for the signal, Barnabas. I put the I put the um, 
parachute on Gerald, my snap it shut, and I put my wings on. It's all right. I'll push you. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And uh, he, uh, Jollypot's looking through the spyglass, uh, and he's waiting. He seems to be looking in the direction that Team Cornfoot's uh, hot air balloon went. Uh, I... Look that way as well. Yeah, you can see it. Uh, your your eyes are as good as uh, Jollypot's spyglass, if not better. Uh, you can see um, uh, Team Cornfoot is uh, actually a couple uh, hot air balloons between you. Like basically, the distance between you and the and the next one, which you see is uh, DD Cups. You see them, and they're like a mile or two away. And then beyond that, you see the small, like faint a balloon that you recognize to be uh, Cornfoot's uh, hot air balloon. Are these parachutes? Any altitude parachutes? Yes, but they're one use only. Uh, you, you uh, Zeke, see as um, uh, Cornfoot is uh, uh, looking through his spyglass at all the other things, and once he seems to think everyone is in position, uh, he uh, nods, and uh, Isaac, of all people, uh, draws a flare and shoots it into the sky. And uh, uh, Jolly Pot goes, That's the signal! Go, go, go! Go forth! For adventure and glory! I climb on the rails. Tally ho! <laughs> I jump off. I push Gerald. <laughs> you push Gerald? <laughs> and then I fall down and then, like, grab onto him <laughs> and try to, like, push him forward a little bit towards Dalvosia. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to glide down on a. Yes, I, would, I was going to suggest that we all connect to me and I pull us, but he's already gone, so... <laughs> uh, Gerald is plummeting. He is not aerodynamic. I know. Uh, what about you, Zeke? Uh, I, I give Jollypot a nod, and then this was like day four of Stormship training school. <laughs> and I, I jump off and remember my training. Yep. Uh, you see a very graceful Barnabas doing... A flip. <laughs> I, uh, I tuck in as I pass by him and I yell out, that makes you go slower. <laughs> I uh, take that as a challenge. And I uh, <laughs> bring my arms in and try to catch up to him. All right. I need everyone to roll a dexterity check for me. 18. So tier two. Uh, tier one for Zeke. Both Gerald and I rolled tier two. All right. Um, so... Uh, the base of the Rikon mountain range is coming very quickly. Um, Zeke, in your, uh, in your little jab to uh, uh, Barnabas, you uh, kind of like lost count as you were like, you know, approaching the ground, like you were, you know, trying to calculate how quickly you were going to approach. And you look back and you're like, oh shit. And you see that you're very close. Um, and, uh, and you pull your parachute. Um, and uh, the rest of you all pull your parachutes as well. Um, Gerald uh, sees you pull his parachute, goes whoop whoop, and uh, pulls his parachute. Um, and uh, uh, Talia, Barnabas, and Gerald, you all have a, uh, you all start gliding down towards the ground. Uh, Zeke, you kind of like scrape the edge of the mountain, uh, like uh, like the last base of like the mountain uh, as you're going, uh, like. And your parachute like kicks up, and you uh, you start like spinning a little bit. You don't lose control, but you definitely like. Let it go too uh, too quickly, and even though it's an any altitude parachute, uh, your like trajectory and spin has made it like so you still hit the ground nice and hard, uh, and you like skid. Uh, just roll a damage soak for me. Uh, it's a tier two. Cool. Uh, you take one uh, damage to your uh, hit points, uh, which you know 
It's just like you you kind of barely get like the wind knocked out of you and like have to like combat roll to like compensate for the the land. But I'm the first on the ground. You are the first on the ground, and the, and then your teammates glide down and land next to you, uh, dropping the parachutes where they are. And um, you look forward and you see the open fields of uh, eastern Evangles, uh off in the distance, several miles away. You can see the uh, city of Bale. Um, and beyond that, out of your vision, you know to the north is the border between Evangles and Dalvosia. And in the center of Dalvosia is Dayon, uh, your first checkpoint, uh, according to Jollypot. So much good for going faster, eh, Zeke? <laughs> what? Yeah, I got here before you. Uh, not very gracefully. You didn't see that. <laughs> oh, it. my friend, I saw the whole thing. Shut up. It's a race. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we will end uh, today's session. This podcast has been brought to you by ENPC Productions. All rights reserved. The Essential NPCs podcast is not affiliated with, endorsed, sponsored, or specifically approved by Cracked Monocle Gaming. Tefra, the steampunk RPG, is a trademark of Cracked Monocle Gaming. All rights reserved. Go to www.crackedmonocle.com for more information.